I don't remember much from my childhood. It seems to be mostly a blur now, but there have always been fluctuations, events in my life so stressful or exciting that the moments surrounding them are clear as day. I'm sure that's the case for everybody, right? Well, I do remember one such event. Actually, this memory is one that I struggle to free myself from on most nights. I don't think I've ever experienced anything so, so terrifying. The memory begins the night my family moved into an old rural farmhouse in Missouri. I was six at the time. I remember fighting with my older brother, Ethan, over an old Game Boy. As he was only two years older than me, he only aggravated me further. None of us were very excited about the move, but Mom and Dad knew this was the only way to survive, given our poor financial situation. My mother, unemployed, spent most of her time taking care of me and my brother. My father was a commercial truck driver, so it was common for him to be gone for weeks at a time. I remember my family unpacking everything into our new home. It was nice because my dad was actually there that day. The move was fast because we really didn't own much. Dad left as soon as we unpacked, though. He said he'd be back next month. I recall my mother being very hesitant about not having him there, but they both knew that this long leave was necessary to their modest lifestyle. The next day, my brother and I decided we would explore the woods around the house. All of it was so new, so serene, and we didn't really know where to start, so we decided to take off just behind the house where the chain-link fence ended. Luckily, we found a lightly trodden trail just at the end of the tree line. From the kitchen window, we heard our mom yell, You boys don't go out too far. Be back before it gets dark. And with that, we were off. There wasn't much of interest to see out there. It had recently rained, so muddy puddles peppered the trail. While Ethan was preoccupied with avoiding the messy puddles, I made a game of stepping in each one. Little did I know this would lead to a harsh scolding later that night. Eventually, the path opened up to a clearing. I remember it being quite beautiful. The sun broke through the overcast sky and poured through the thin canopy above. The ground was abundant with green patches, and the few rocks that were there were flushed with moss. We were delighted with this discovery until we saw the corpse. It was the body of a doe. It lay on its side, lifeless, black eyes bulging from their sockets. Its insides had been torn out and riddled along the forest floor. We were both disgusted. I, I wonder what happened. I heard Ethan mutter under his breath. Maybe it was a hunter, I wondered. Yeah, he said, pointing at what looked like a bullet hole. But it's not right that they just started gutting it, then decided to leave it here. I ignored him and decided to keep going on the trail. Ethan was hesitant, but he soon followed. But not five minutes into our walk, we found something else. Another clearing opened up. Just ahead of us was a cliff that must have been a hundred yards tall. In the cliffside, there was something that looked to be a small cave. Immediately, we both stopped 
in our tracks. I drudged forward. Come on, let's go check it out. No! Ethan quickly grabbed my arm. He pressed hard. I yanked myself free, angry at his sudden and painful outburst. What's with you? Just... He didn't take his eyes off of the cave. Please don't go in there. Let's head back. It'll be dark soon. Suddenly, a loud crash protruded from the cave. Scared out of our minds, we took off. I was younger and smaller, so Ethan easily outran me. Halfway home, in mid-stride, my foot got stuck. I had stepped into one of the mini puddles. This one was especially thick and would not release me. Ethan, wait! I cried out, but he didn't hear me. Tears poured out over my cheeks as I thrashed about, trying to free myself. Eventually, my foot tore out of my shoe. I left it behind and ran home as fast as I possibly could. After being reprimanded for my filthy clothes and missing shoe, Ethan and I shook off the noise at the cave as a falling rock or maybe just wind. Before we knew it, it was pitch black outside and we were laughing about a dirty joke Ethan had heard that I pretended to understand. Back then, one of the things I remembered most was our schnauzer, Rascal. Rascal was a mild-mannered dog, and the thing I remember about him most is the way he'd sit like a seal with his back legs sprawled out in the opposite direction. He was always a quiet dog. He'd only bark if you sat on him. We had always lived out in the country, so every pet we ever owned was always trained to stay outside unattended and to scratch the door when they wanted in or out. That night, just before Mom began cooking dinner, she let Rascal out for his routine bathroom run. Soon, dinner was ready. It was a meager meal of spaghetti and garlic toast. Nevertheless, it was delicious and better than nothing. Ethan and I finished quickly so as to avoid dish duty and to get back to our Nintendo 64 in the living room. That's when I heard scratching at the door. Instinctively, I got up from where I was sitting, never breaking eye contact with the TV. I steadily eased my way to the door, not wanting to miss what Ethan was doing on our game. As my back bumped into the doorknob of the front door, I turned around and grabbed it. Suddenly, I felt a stinging sensation at my leg. I looked down. It was Rascal, scratching my leg, begging me to play with him. I backed away from the door, bewildered by whatever was outside scratching to be let in. Honey? My mom walked by, never looking in my direction. Would you please let the dog in? Mom? She looked my way. I picked up Rascal to show her the problem. Back away from the door, honey. Later that night, after shrugging off the scratches as raccoons, a branch or a leaf being blown across the door, we were all in bed either sleeping or attempting to. Back then, my brother and I had to share a room. But we had a lot of fun with this, often telling each other stories or playing games, before being scolded by our mom or dad for staying up too late. Tonight was a rather quiet night. Ethan was quickly asleep, and I was left alone to wonder about the strange noises from earlier today. 
I've been remembering my shoe, all alone in the cold, dark woods. I knew I'd have to get that shoe back, or risk Mom spending money we didn't have on shoes. Hopefully, it was still there, and hadn't been dragged off or trampled on by some wild animals. And then it was decided. I had to go back out there and get my shoe in the morning. I'd already thought it through. I'd wear my dad's big boots. Confident and snug, I turned over onto my side and shut my eyes. I jumped. The sound was... it was so close. Had it followed me? How could a branch follow you? That made no sense. It had to have been a raccoon or a rat or something alive. I was sure of it. I shut my eyes hard, waiting for the eerie, irritating noise to go away. But it didn't. It was coming from right beneath the house, right below where my bed was. The next morning, I reluctantly explored around the base of the house, looking for the source of that scratching. It led me into a small square opening just below the window of my room. Too afraid to crawl in and find the culprit, I ran to my mother. That's a crawl space, she told me after I asked why there was a hole under the house. That's the space where we can look at or fix the plumbing. It may look like a house, but this place is actually just a couple of small, connected trailers. That's why there is no foundation. She explained the purpose of the odd crawl space thoroughly, but all I knew after that was that there was a dark, scary place under the house. From that day on, I made an effort to completely avoid going near it. And that same day, I begged Ethan to return with me to the trail we had explored so I could get my muddy shoe back. After a few minutes of persistent begging, he gave in, although he probably only submitted because he was in trouble for letting me get so messy yesterday. Back on the trail, we immediately noticed that the deer carcass from before was gone. There was no trace of it whatsoever. The hunter who killed it must have came back for it, I assumed. The area of the path where I lost my shoe was up ahead, so we continued. The puddles still hadn't dried up. In fact, they were just as dirty and thick as before. As we rounded the curve of the path, I caught sight of the mischievous shoe-stilling puddle. But my shoe was gone. All that was left was my footprint in the mud. A few days passed. Every night my ears were met with those eerie, scratching noises from beneath my bed. What was it that was just underneath the floorboards? This question came to mind every time my head hit the pillow. Eventually, to keep my sanity, I just assumed that it was the pipes rattling against the floor. I just ignored the fact that it only happened at night. Ethan grew to ignore the noises as well. He'd still always fall asleep first. For me, the noises only became harder and harder to ignore, and soon I became jealous of his easy sleeping. I'd often wake up from nightmares of a terrifying monster erupting from the floorboards and eating me. But more often than the nightmares, I'd wake up cranky and irritated. I remember staying inside all day one day after waking up in another bad mood. Mom was nagging me constantly for being lazy. After hours of laying around the house, night had come. After dinner that night, Mom forced me to scrape a bowl of potato pills outside so that they didn't stink up the house. Being six, I was of course afraid and hesitant to go outside. 
I was never afraid of the dark. I've never been afraid of it. But back then, I was deathly terrified of what might lurk in the dark. Despite my fear, I had to do as she said. She was my mother, after all. Potato pills in my hand, I opened the front door and scanned the perimeter. It was dark. It would have been pitch black had it not been for the sole light from the telephone pole by the driveway. I decided to make my way toward the light. It seemed like the safest route. I took a few steps, ears perked and eyes vigilant. Steadily, I lowered myself from the porch. I made my way to the light pole. Soon, I was under the bug-infested light. Instead of scraping the pills from the bowl, I dumped them out and turned on my heel toward the house. And that's when I heard the breathing. It came from the direction of my room. It was heavy and slow. My heart stopped. The only thing I knew to do was run. The only thing I wanted to do was run. So I did, as quickly as my legs could take me. But as soon as I did, very subtle footsteps rang out through the night air. I could only run faster as the steps got closer and closer, until they were only yards away. I was crying now. My mouth was gaped in an effort to scream but my throat was so dry from anxiety that no sound followed. As soon as I was to the door, I opened it and slammed it shut so quickly that the closing door caught my ankle, bruising and cutting it. I crawled back, sweating and never looking away from the shut door. And just as I knew they would, the scratching came from the door again. This time they were more frantic, more violent, each scratch made me shiver. I jumped up, and without thinking, I locked the door. Minutes passed, and I was soon able to pull myself from this nightmare to make my way to my family. But they were already there. They had been standing behind me, watching the door in suspense and terror, just as I had been. We had to walk rascal ourselves, and only during the day from then on. My mom told me and my brother after that night... Mom told me and my brother we weren't allowed outside unsupervised until she said otherwise. She didn't even have to tell me, as if I wanted to go outside with whatever was making those noises. I could barely look out the windows without my heart pounding, forcing me to look away. So we stayed inside, trying to preoccupy ourselves in the thick silence that had befallen the house. We rarely talked, and we never smiled, but we did have an unspoken thought that everything would be better once Dad was back home the next week. That day couldn't come soon enough. Mom seemed especially worried, though. She'd sit in her recliner, staring out the window, waiting, thinking. She must have been wondering what she could do to make this problem disappear. I doubt anything stresses a mother more than knowing her children could be in danger. Luckily, the scratching stopped soon thereafter. To our surprise, it seemed like whatever was making the noises was gone. It was only a day until my father came home, and Mom was already letting us back outside. Of course, we were very hesitant, but she made sure she was very close to us while we were out there. Curious, I made my way to the edge of the house where the crawl space was located. As usual, it was dark and terrifying, but there was a new sense of fear to it. What if there was still something in there? What if I got too close and something grabbed me and pulled me under? 
wisely, and I turned away and made my way back to my mother's presence. When we returned inside the house, a vulgar, disgusting smell bombarded our senses. It was terrible. I heard Mom gag. We quickly covered our noses and searched the house for the smell. Almost expectedly, the smell was most concentrated in my room. Unfortunately, my mother immediately forced us to clean the room, assuming that we had eaten something and left it somewhere in the floor. An hour passed. The room was spotless, but the smell was worse. Then my mom had an idea. She grabbed a flashlight and took us outside. She told my brother to take it, look inside the crawl space, and see if anything was making that smell. He knelt down, peered in with the flashlight on, but didn't see anything. To our horror, he began crawling inside. My mother tried to stop him, but he was already too far in. Nevertheless, I knew my mother would have stopped him if she wasn't completely sure it was okay, so I trusted her. On hands and knees, Ethan disappeared into the darkness. Minutes that seemed like hours passed, and Mom and I waited patiently, ready to be rid of the terrible smell so we could relax inside. It just smells awful in here, we heard Ethan echo from inside. Just keep going, honey, my mother said. We heard a rebellious sigh as Ethan continued further. I guess he regretted jumping in head first. Then, the noisy shuffling of Ethan's crawling stopped. I found something, he yelled back. My mother and I looked at each other and then looked back into the crawl space anxiously. What is it? she asked. Ethan replied, I, I don't know, then grunted. But it's really heavy. I'll try to drag it out. Then we heard a sickening dragging sound accompanied by an occasional crack. Ethan could be heard grunting again and again as he tugged at the heavy thing. Soon he emerged, his hand still immersed in the darkness, pulling at something. With one powerful tug, Ethan pulled the entirety of it out, falling in the dirt from the excessive force. I could barely breathe. It was the carcass of a large wolf. Its body was unnaturally thin its ribs exposed through the skin. Its teeth were bared, because its lips had shriveled up from dryness. It was a grotesque and horrifying sight. But it wasn't the body itself that scarred me forever and horrified me beyond belief. Instead, it was the understanding of what this meant. I had been hunted. I began piecing the story together. The pieces fell into place perfectly. It had lived in that cave. That explained the weird noise. It must have eaten that deer that was left behind by a hunter. That explained the carcass. It must have gotten my scent from the shoe I lost. That explained why I never found it. It had followed me home that night, digging into the door to try to get in, following the smell of prey to my room, and began digging through the floor. I was horrified. This thing, it was after me, my scent. This creature was starving to death. It ran out of food, and it was desperate. Murderously desperate. Years of hunting must have killed off its food supply. My mother was in tears, apparently understanding what had almost happened to me. 
but I ran in the house as fast as I could. There was something I had to see. I flung open the door to my room. I pushed my bed from its spot with all the force I could muster, and I looked at the floor below. The carpet was torn, and there was a hole lighting up the crawlspace below. It had almost gotten through. I had a job as a researcher in an outpost in the Canadian wilderness that I have recently left. Don't get excited. I didn't leave because I was haunted by a demon. I left because I felt it was time for me to move on to something new. The job wasn't all that glamorous, but it was a lot of fun. I grew very close with the four other researchers who worked there, and I've always loved the wilderness so I was a perfect fit for the assignment. When I arrived at the outpost, three of my four team members had already been working there for time periods spanning from two months to a year and a half. Their names were Miles, Janet, and Kyle, and I instantly got along with all of them. Our fifth member was assigned a month after me, and her name was Sarah. We ate worked and lived together, so it was pretty difficult for us to not get close. Now, on to the scary stuff. Our base had a reputation of having unexplainable things happen in the surrounding woods. I found out about it a few weeks into my assignment, as my team stayed up talking one night, and Miles brought it up while telling a story. Past researchers who have spent time in our base have reported unexplainable sightings while they were on hikes through the woods that have given our outpost a reputation. It's said that anyone who works here will have at least one strange experience before they leave. The moment I heard this, I became enthralled with the idea due to my love of the otherworldly. During our time there, all five of us have experienced one strange event and I want to share our stories with you. I would have shared these sooner, but I was worried that my employers would find out, so I waited until these stories were redacted from the outpost's records. Most write them off as pranks played by the researchers to keep our outpost's reputation alive, but I believe that each one is real. I've asked each of them to write out their story so I could compile them after editing. Looking at you, Miles, I've never seen so many spelling mistakes in my life. I'll post one a day and feel free to read them in whatever order you like. They could all stand alone. Sarah's Story This story is a good introduction to what our team witnessed, because it is the most docile story of the bunch, but it is still strange and outlandish. It happened about three months into Sarah's assignment. I was admittedly angry because she had witnessed something unexplainable before me, even though I had been at the outpost longer than her. This is from Sarah's perspective. I was out on a hike with Miles and Janet after a particularly bad snowstorm had taken place the night before. 
Our job was to visit the mini equipment stations set up throughout the woods and make sure the storm hadn't damaged any of the technology. The clouds had disappeared after the storm, leaving us with a sunny day and a good mood. Miles told us a funny college story, and Janet and I laughed as we walked through the peaceful woods, listening to birds who had flown back from their southern vacation a little too early. It was a great day, and it certainly didn't feel like anything unusual was going to happen. We arrived at the first station to find that some of the equipment had to be reset, but soon were on our way. By the time we arrived at the second station, almost an hour had passed, and we all became aware at how inefficient it was for us to go to each station together. It was protocol to stick together on days after snowstorms due to the possible changes in terrain and the increased possibility of someone getting hurt. But the moment Miles suggested that we split up, Janet didn't spare a second to agree. We divided the remaining stations amongst ourselves and set off in different directions. I had chosen the stations that were the easiest to get to because I was admittedly a little afraid of getting hurt and left in the woods alone. They were closer than the others, but still a hike away, and I was able to spend some time alone in the beauty of the forest. The sun shone down through the thin pine trees along the trail, and I couldn't help but smile at the whole scene. I was in a good mood, so I began to whistle a made-up song which, most who know me will tell you, is a common and annoying thing I do. As I was nearing my first station, I suddenly heard a loud whistle from far off the right side of the path. It was more defined than the birdsong I had heard with Janet and Miles, but it lasted for only a moment and sounded very far off. I wasn't sure what it was, so I walked a little quicker and hoped that it came from a bird species I wasn't familiar with. I reached the first station shortly after to find that everything was working fine and proceeded to make the journey to the next one. I reached the second station in about half an hour to find its barometer had fallen in the snow during the storm. I reattached it to its mount and then left. It was on my way to the third and last station I was assigned that it happened. The station was the furthest I had taken, and it was located near the border of the outpost's territory. It was a 45-minute hike, and I heard it about a half hour in. It was the whistle I had heard from earlier. It came from the right side of the path, and it was louder, signaling that the source of the noise was closer. I froze when I heard it, but then decided that I would continue down the path at a faster pace like before. I took about four steps before I heard another tone from the same place. I proceeded forward again, but slower this time, walking until I had moved about twenty feet from where I'd heard the first noise when I heard the tone again. Suddenly, I started to hear a bunch of different whistle noises coming from the same area, off from the right of the path. They would overlap and change volume and pitch, but I could tell they were coming closer. 
I was about to run towards the next station, not because I was afraid, but because it was the only instinct I felt at the time. What was happening didn't make sense, but I didn't feel like I was in danger. As I was about to leave, the random tone suddenly stopped and turned into a melody. The sound became pleasing, and I could pick out a few chords as I listened. The sound kept approaching, but there was something about the song that was familiar and calming. When the sound seemed to be only a couple dozen feet away from the trail, I realized that it was the song I had made up while I was whistling. Whatever was making the sound was behind a few pine trees beside the path, about fifteen feet behind me. It paused for a moment, then pushed through the branches and came into the center of the path to sit and look at me. I could not comprehend what it was. My mind told me that it didn't belong in this world and that it couldn't be here. But I could clearly see it. It had the body of a hairless pit bull, but its head looked like it had been replaced with some sort of bee's nest. It walked on all fours and sat in the path like a dog, but its body was wrinkled and fleshy. Its head looked like it was made of paper mache and formed a couple dozen hexagon openings where its face should be. The holes were deep and formed long hexagon-shaped tubes that stretched to the back of its beehive head. It had no face, but it sat patiently and faced me. I was frozen, looking at it, and a few seconds later, it began whistling my song again. The tones seemed to come from the holes in its face. It sat there for a few seconds, whistling, and I stood motionless. Again, I didn't feel in danger, but I did feel uneasy, as if this shouldn't be possible. I don't know why I did it, but I decided to whistle back. I started to whistle a new song, and the moment I did, the thing cocked its head like a confused dog and stopped making any noise. This startled me, so I stopped whistling again, and we both remained motionless facing one another in silence. The thing's head returned upright, and then it began to whistle the song I was trying to make only a few seconds ago. It then stood up and trotted off into the woods on the left side of the path. I was shaken, but it was gone. I wondered if I should follow it, but something told me that I should let it be. With nothing else to do, I continued on my way to find that the third station was completely fine.
Anthony had been missing for a little over a decade. Just yesterday, his best friend Jonathan finally found him. Twelve years ago, when both of the boys shared the youthful age of ten years, they enjoyed playing on a large tree just beyond the woods near their neighboring homes. This tree stood in the middle of a field, and atop it, they could see further than they ever thought possible. To the east, there was town, its hustle and bustle epitomized by the glimmer of hundreds of distant cars, and to the west, Mount Gertrude set calm and towering. Something more than a tree-studded century. And to the north and the south, there were evergreens as far as the eye could see. Needless to say, these two playful boys made the colossal tree their go-to place for everything. Hide-and-seek, cloud-watching, cops and robbers. But what they enjoyed most of all was sitting at the top of the tree on a sturdy branch to simply gaze out at the horizon. And so they named it The Looking Tree. On his eleventh birthday, several months before Jonathan's, Anthony was gifted an exquisite pair of binoculars with a strap so long it hung below the boy's waists. After hours of taking turns looking through the attic window of Anthony's house, the idea finally dawned on Jonathan. We should take it to the looking tree, he exclaimed. Anthony was hesitant. But I'll get in trouble if I lose them along the way. Jonathan persisted. Just keep them around your neck and they won't get lost. The other refused again. They're so nice. We might break them. His counterpart rebutted. Hide them in your tucked shirt. Then if they fall from your neck, they won't hit the ground. Anthony sighed. One more time, he declined. But what if the binoculars get hung on a branch? Jonathan pondered for a moment before finally answering. Then we will climb over to where they are and get them down. The older boy gave in. The excitement at the thought of using his gift atop the looking tree got the better of him. And so it came, just an hour before sunset that autumn day, Anthony and Jonathan made their way to the looking tree to peer into new worlds abound. Twilight was upon them as they reached the trunk of the tree. The purple hue of the clinging day complemented the looking tree's beauty, and the boys found themselves gazing up at the sight in awe. Quickly, they remembered their goal and began climbing the tree. They reached the top, nestled themselves safely onto the sturdy, topmost branch, and bickered over who was to use the binoculars first. Jonathan, knowing that night was close and would soon ruin their game, relented and said, y you, you use them first, Anthony. It's your birthday, after all. His friend smiled. Thank you, Jonathan. We should do this once morning has come. They agreed silently, and Anthony held the binoculars up to his eyes. Jonathan! It was the boy's mother calling from the other side of the woods. His smile faded into a frown. He knew he would have to leave and wait to use the binoculars with his friend tomorrow. He began his descent down the looking tree, when he noticed that Anthony was still observing the dimming horizon. Won't you come? 
asked Jonathan. Soon, soon, Anthony answered without turning. First, I want to watch the sunset through my gift. Jonathan rolled his eyes, hopped down the tree, and raced home before the shadows could catch him. In the morning, he got out of bed quickly and ran to meet Anthony at his house. Outside, the grass was heavy with water, and puddles peppered the gravel road. He had slept through a heavy rain overnight. When he arrived at the other boy's home, legs soaked in remnants of the midnight downpour, he knocked on the door and waited. Oh, hello, Johnny. His friend's mother greeted him as she opened the door. Hi, he smiled wide. Is Anthony home? Her smiling face twisted into an expression that Jonathan could not recognize, but one that made his stomach turn. I thought he spent the night with you, she stuttered. Before he could reply, he ran down the steps and headed toward the looking tree. Jonathan smiled, running faster as he assumed that Anthony had spent the whole night stargazing with his binoculars. As he broke through the tree line and the looking tree came into view, his run became a walk. The boy's eyebrows lowered and his head tilted. The tree was empty save for the leaves that hung quietly in the autumn desperation. Where was Anthony? He continued toward the tree, sinking further into mud with each step. It had flooded there the night before. Even so, he stepped forward until he could pull himself into the tree from the lowest branch. Once there, he climbed upward, checking each branch for any trace of Anthony. But there was nothing. Even the big branch at the top was gone, leaving behind a short, broken stump. He looked around in every direction. The looking tree was so tall that surely he'd be able to see Anthony if he was out. And yet there was no sign of the boy nor his binoculars. Jonathan searched for hours. Soon he could hear both their parents calling out Anthony's name. Hours turned into days, and days became weeks. Anthony did not show. Jonathan was devastated, never coming out of his room, each day hearing out of his window the distressed shouts of Anthony's searching parents. Months went by, and Anthony was soon declared dead. Nothing was ever the same for Jonathan after that. His grades dropped. His social life withered, and his happiness disappeared the same way his best friend had before. It is twelve years later now. Jonathan has grown, but the happiness has never returned. He is a shell of a man, the cask of a boy who was forced to grow up too quickly. Just yesterday, though, the most cumbersome question in Jonathan's life had finally been answered. Because yesterday, he journeyed back to the looking tree for the first time in a decade. He stood beneath it, reminiscing back to his childhood, back to the days before those binoculars. As Jonathan walked around its trunk, wondering whether or not the tree's branches were still sturdy enough to hold his adult body, he fell into what he thought was a sinkhole. His heart pounding, he frantically climbed out of the hole. He backed away from it fearing that the hole would widen and swallow him up again. But, as he stood back and stared into it, he noticed it wasn't a sinkhole. Jonathan slowly ventured closer and, 
when he saw, he fell to his knees. Inside, a familiar branch broke through the soil. At its tip, a pair of binoculars clung to the branch by a long black strap. And at the other end of that strap was the small, long decaying corpse of a once unsure birthday boy. So, I've noticed a lot of experiences take place in the woods. I had previously thought that there were fewer people experiencing strange happenings in forests, despite the many unexplainable events I myself have experienced. Anyway, I figured I would share one of mine, so here goes. This happened 15 years ago, I believe, because I remember being around 10 at the time. Growing up, I had a best friend named Michael. He was my neighbor. Our families had been neighbors since before we were born, so even if we didn't want to, we would have been made to spend time with one another. Luckily, though, we were quite easy to bond. His family would go to a cabin in the mountains. The mountains, of course, is what we called it, but the nearest mountain range was incredibly small so it was much more notable as just being a forest. When we were ten, my parents allowed me to accept their invitation for me to join them on their trip that year. Excited as I was at the time, this would quickly change after staying there. When the day comes, we depart from our hometown and embark on the nearly three-hour trip to the cabin. Michael and I are both elated, that we get to spend a whole week together in this cabin, just enjoying the outdoors away from society. It sounded way more enticing to ten-year-old me, I promise. At some point, I had fallen asleep. I assume Michael did too, since his parents called both our names as we were pulling up the snow-covered drive to the cabin. I look out the window, and I see a vast blanket of fresh snow covering everything. It must have snowed as recently as that morning, at least five inches deep too, judging from the snow amassed on the cabin's roof. This cabin was entirely surrounded by a forest that somehow still managed to appear incredibly dense, despite none of the trees even bearing leaves. The cabin itself was incredibly small and wooden, and only bearing about five windows throughout. As soon as the car is parked, Michael and I burst out of the car and tromp through the snow, chasing one another and throwing snowballs. His parents took our bags and coolers of food inside and started making a home of the place while we stayed outside nearly until dark, playing in the snow. As nighttime was nearing, Michael and I heard what I can only assume was the cry of an animal. It sounded like a nervous, shrill bleat. We both guessed it must have been a deer. Not long afterwards, 
Michael's dad would call us in for dinner. After dinner, we sat in the living room area. His mom tried to turn on a lamp, which wouldn't turn on. His dad joked about the place being cozy, but being wired horribly. Then he started a fire in the fireplace, and we just hung out until it was time to wind down for the night and get ready for bed. Michael and I headed to our room, which featured two twin beds, a closet whose door refused to latch, a throw rug, as well as one of the five windows in the cabin. Michael and I, being young and having slept on the way to the cabin, weren't really ready to sleep. So instead, we spent our time sitting in our beds, trying to scare one another the way kids do. We began nodding off and called it a night. We switch off the lamp and go to sleep. I was woken up in the middle of the night to what sounded like a very small slam or bang. Being jarred right from my sleep, I thought I had imagined the sound, but something woke me up nonetheless. I bolted upright in my bed, and I am sure I saw something creeping out of my peripheral vision. But the room was heavily shadowed, and it was a moonless night, so there was nearly no natural light to bathe the room. There was just me, Michael, and something else in the pitch black. I turn to the lamp, and I switch it on. Nothing. I try again to turn it on, but nothing. Beginning to panic, I search through drawers in the nightstand the lamp sat on, until my hands found a flashlight. I pull it out and light it up, placing my hand over it, shining it through my fingers, not wanting to make too much light so I wouldn't draw attention from whatever was there. I shine the small beam of light around the room slowly, always fearing the next inch of room the light would reach. Shining it on Michael's side of the room, I found he was still asleep. I crawl out of bed as quietly as possible, shining my light at the floor. I remember it like it was yesterday, the sight of melting snow footprints making their way across our room from the window. They stopped halfway through the room when the prints came into contact with the rug on the floor. I cried out in fear and ran to Michael's parents' room, waking them up and telling them that something got inside our room. They believed me and rushed to the room to inspect. However, I would lose their trust when they found the wet footprints gone, like they had dried up instantly, hiding themselves. His dad inspected the window, and the window was locked. No way something could have gotten in. His parents weren't mad. They told me everything was alright, then sent me back to bed. I curled up, with the flashlight still in my hand in case I should need it again. Eventually, I would get back to sleep and make it through the rest of the night. The next morning, Michael and I were woken up by his parents encouraging us 
to stay quiet. All of our bags were packed and in the car. We were rushed outside and into the car as quickly as we could, still in our pajamas. His dad was the last out of the house and into the car. We drove all the way home, and Michael's dad told us that they had forgotten something at home, and that it was too much of a hassle to drive all the way back to the mountains just for a few days. I always thought there was something fishy about that story. Over this past Christmas, Michael and I found some time to hang out and catch up. Our families had gotten together in his living room, and we were just discussing life and reminiscing over some drinks. Then we bring up the cabin story, and his dad's demeanor suddenly becomes serious. That's when he decided to tell us what he actually knew. Well, Michael's dad woke up at the first light of dawn on the morning that we would leave. He got up and headed outside to collect firewood. Going behind the house where the forest was thickest, he spotted a trail of footprints in the snow coming from the woods, leading directly up to the window in Michael's and my room. He didn't really know how to describe the footprints, other than they didn't look entirely human, unless a human walks around on all fours with three long toes on each foot. He circled the cabin, looking for exit tracks and found none. He immediately rushed into the house, woke up his wife, and told her to pack everything while he searched the house. As much as he searched, though, he found nothing. Not willing to take chances with whatever was in the house with us, he instead had us get the hell out of there as quickly as he could. While Michael's mom was loading us into the car, he was checking through the house one last time. And upon checking our room, he found the closet slightly ajar, with just enough light shining in to illuminate a sunken black eye peeking out and watching him. He was there again tonight, watching me through my window as I pretended to sleep. He's been coming to my window every night since I came to this place. He thinks I don't know he's there. He thinks he's clever, but I see him. I feel him. When he watches me, I'm stiff as a stone. My heartbeat races, I begin to sweat, and my blood runs cold. But I never move a muscle. Sometimes he puts his hands on my window, his breath fogging up the glass, and sometimes I can hear him crying. His intentions are sinister, I know it. He's started to come into my room now. He sits in a chair by the foot of my bed, breathing heavy breaths, polluting my air. 
Sometimes he will mumble things. Sometimes he hums lullabies. Sometimes he just cries. Recently, he took a big step. He came into my room and looked at my paintings, touched them. He touched my paintings. Then he pulled up a chair and sat at the foot of my bed, just watching me. I never look at him directly. I know if he sees me open my eyes, he will get me. I've started to hear his whispers. They're too faint for me to understand, but I know they're there. I feel the pure evil in his voice. It scares me, and I hate being afraid. Something must be done. I started to leave him messages. I would place them at the foot of my bed for him to find. Leave. No more. Stay away. But when I wake up, my messages are gone and replaced by his own sick, demented words. I'm here for you. I won't go. I need you. This man, he's twisted. This man is vile. This man wants my blood. He wants me dead, and I know it. But I won't allow that to happen. I can't, so I leave him more messages. Never return. Stop coming here. I hate you. Again, I wake to his disgusting responses. Why? I love you. I'll never leave. It burns my stomach that this man will not understand. It gnaws at my bones that he still chooses to come to my room every night. He thinks he can just get away with it. But I grow tired of this little game we play. Last night, I made sure to steal one of my art scissors, and I brought it to bed. I hid it under my pillow, pulled up my covers, and closed my eyes, listening, waiting. He came to my window. He put his hand on the glass. He cried for a moment, then... He entered my room. He looked at my paintings, touched them again. He pulled up his chair and he sat and he watched me. I waited. He began humming lullabies again. He stood and paced around the room, sobbing. He walked to the side of my bed, leaned down, kissed me on my cheek and I drove my scissors deep into his throat. I didn't look at him. I knew he could still get me, but I listened as he choked on his own blood. I heard him fall to the floor, grasping his neck, gurgling, gasping for air. Before he went still, he said one more thing. Why? Large men broke down my door. They ran to the dead evil man and pulled him away. 
Then they took me away. They strapped me down and put me in a padded room. I don't understand why. I can't paint. I can't hang my art in here. Eventually, a man who said he was my doctor came in. He sat at the edge of my bed, like the man at my window. He pulled out his clipboard, and he spoke to me. Mrs. Rutger, I I'd like for you to explain to me why you did what you did. What brought you to your actions? Do you recall your thought process? Wasn't it obvious? I stopped the evil man from coming into my room and watching me. I saved myself from being taken by him. The doctor stared at me for a moment. Mrs. Rutger, I'm afraid you're not quite understanding what's happened to you. You've been in a terrible car accident in which you lost your three children. Because of this, you had an extreme mental breakdown, and you were admitted to Shining Pines Mental Health Facility. You've been here for quite some time. In fact, your husband has been the only one in your family to come see you since you arrived. I stared at him blankly. <sighs> Mrs. Rutger, I don't know how to say this, but your husband, he was the man you've just murdered. don't believe you. Noah tried to convince himself, yet his eyes reflected a child's anxiety. I smiled. You don't have to believe me, his face almost brightened. But that doesn't mean it didn't really happen. His frown returned. I was never really sure why he wanted me to tell him these ghost stories. He begged and begged for them, only to end up frightened and jumpy. The rain fell as a light stream, thunder booming in the distance as wind shuffled through the trees. The walk home was delightfully long. I had always loved rainy days and would often find excuses to be out in them. Noah, my little brother, who followed my every footstep, would himself always find an excuse to be by my side. But monsters ain't real, Brendan. He spoke in a half-hearted whisper. That's what Mom says. It was almost a question, timidity apparent in his voice. Noah sat down on an old stump, only to rise again as he realized the rain had gathered on its surface. He wiped at the back of his jeans, trying in vain to dry himself. He sighed and plopped back down. I sat next to him, though there was hardly enough room for us both. I placed the plastic bag on my lap and quickly checked to make sure the loaf of bread inside hadn't gotten wet. Mom would be pissed. Luckily, its sill was tight and intact. Sometimes, I sighed. Mom says things just to make you feel better. I shouldn't have said it, but part of me wanted to frighten him a little more. And I knew he loved this. He loved being scared. He loved hearing these stories. He looked up at me, squinting his blue eyes. Why would she do that? 
Noah sounded both offended and confused. So he'd stop being a wuss. I budged him with my shoulder. I'm not a wuss. He finally smiled back at me. I punched his arm and jumped away before he could hit me back. Once he ran after me, I ran ahead on the path. He didn't like that. No! Noah shouted behind me. There was real panic in his voice. Don't leave me! I couldn't help but feel a bit guilty. I slowed down and let him catch up. Noah had always panicked when he thought you were going to leave him behind. Don't leave me, he'd shout on the brink of tears, even if we were just around the corner. It's not like we made a game of leaving him. In fact, I have no idea where this deep fear of being alone came from. Each time he cried out like that, it pulled at my heart. Noah soon stood in front of me out of breath. Looking at him, I figured it was about time I got him home. I bet I can jump farther than you. Noah jumped and landed hard on a stick that was strewn on the path. It broke in two with a loud snap. Oh, we'll see. I teased him. He had been excited ever since I told him we'd jump the stream. It was a shortcut we rarely took, but my brother was the type of kid that loved to climb trees and skip rocks. Jumping a few stones across the stream would make his day, and I could already hear its babbling from here. Hey, Brendan? He suddenly stopped. Yeah? I turned to him. What do you want to be when you grow up? He asked so innocently. I... I wondered myself. I was a senior in high school then. I had had all of twelve full years of schooling to know that by now. But I didn't. I had no clue. I want to be an astronaut, I eventually said. It sounded so shallow, like I had pulled it out of the air. But if you had asked me thirteen years ago what I wanted to be, that would have been my answer. Well, I want to be a drawer. Noah sounded optimistic. <laughs> a drawer? I couldn't help but giggle. You mean an artist? Yeah, but for games and stuff. He jumped onto another twig before smiling at me. The scar on his nose made my heart sink. It always did. I turned away. I didn't even know I had. One moment I had been facing him and the next I was staring at the path ahead with a stinging ache in my chest. The wind began to pick up, as did the rain. We better get going, Noah. I continued ahead, hearing his smaller footsteps follow suit. It wasn't long before we came upon the stream. Well, it wasn't a stream anymore. Though the rain had never picked up past a light drizzle, it must have been enough to flood the stream into something more daunting. The stepping stones were completely enveloped in racing, muddy water, save for one large one at the very edge of the opposite bank. Broken branches and limbs were strewn about and stuck in various places throughout its flow. I clutched the plastic bag firm in my hand as I realized we'd probably have to go around. That meant being out longer in the rain and probably worrying Mom sick. We can still jump it, Noah exclaimed. He must have noticed the worry on my face. No, I don't think that'd be very smart. That being said, I still thought about it. The water must have been waist high. I was sure the both of us could wade through it, let alone make the jump. Sounds like you're being the wuss now, Noah teased. Well, I thought for a moment. I imagined the two of us joking later at home about how I'd fallen in and gotten soaked. Okay, but climb on my back. If I bring you back covered in mud, Mom's gonna kill me. Before I ever knelt down, my brother had jumped on my back and wrapped his arms around my neck. <laughs> Whoa there! 
I coughed a little, and he eased up on his grip. I stood slowly, making sure he held on tight. Then, I stepped in. The day had been a warm one, even with the rain falling and cooling things down. But when my legs sank into the viscous, watery mixture, it hit me with an ungodly chill. I fought through it, and soon everything waist down was submerged. The water rushed past, trying with all its might to pull me with it. I walked slowly, caution my primary focus. The stream itself wasn't very wide, but the dirty, cold water seemed to go on for miles. It's pretty scary up here, Noah muttered behind me. I couldn't help but laugh at his unexpected remark. Yeah, it was scary, and cold, and there went a good pair of my jeans. Finally, I made it to the opposite bank. I stood only a foot away from the edge. Filling around with my feet, I noticed that there wasn't going to be any climbing up onto the bank. So I turned, preparing to let Noah jump off. As I turned, my body suddenly became lighter, and the grip I had on Noah's legs released. Like I was trying to catch a dropped glass, I shifted around, hands reaching out desperately. Noah floundered in the water beside me. The water tugged at him relentlessly, but something held on to him. Something in the water had a hold of my brother. Its angular appendage gripped his shirt, pointed claws impaling the cloth of his lifeline. Noah screamed, arms reaching out to me helplessly. And I reached toward him. The memories flooded me, the scar on the bridge of his nose, the guilt, the pain. When I had promised to watch him. When I had gotten distracted by something far less important. When he had wandered upstairs and ultimately fallen down them. When I thought he wasn't going to make it. Attacked by the flowing mud, I ran toward him. I ran with all the strength I had, which only made my fall harder. I picked myself up, not bothering to wipe my eyes of the fluid debris. My vision cleared in the matter of a few blinks, in time to see my brother dragged under the water with the creature that stole him. In time to see Noah one last time. All those years ago, after years of psychiatry, therapy, and being shunned by my own family, I have told the story of the creature that took my brother from me countless times to countless people. No one believes me, but it doesn't matter what took him or who trusts the memory that has haunted me for ages. What matters? What matters is that I lost him. It was my fault. He's gone. Forever. How could I have let myself cross that stream? How could I have let myself ruin my family's lives? And the memory of the creature, that claw that rose from the water and pulled him under, the tree branch that had washed downstream and snagged his shirt, all because I wanted to carry him across. I've been working as a private investigator for six years now. You probably have some ideas about that, but it's far less glamorous than you might think. Most of my work involves falling around unfaithful spouses or doing research into political candidates for their opponents. 
It's not what I was hoping for when I got my journalism degree, but it pays the bills, I guess. Living here in Chicago, it's hard to ask for more than that. A few days back, I was sitting in a coffee shop, waiting for a client to arrive. He'd called me that morning, sounding desperate. I was happy about that. Desperate clients are usually prepared to pay more. My client arrived a few minutes later, looking around nervously. He was in his late twenties and dressed fairly casually, but his watch and his shoes told me that he came from money. Thanks for meeting with me, he said. I'm Colin Westwood, and I need your help. I motioned for him to sit down and asked him what I could do for him. My father, he said, he's been missing for five days now, but the police told me that they don't even have an investigator on his case. It's not like him to disappear like this, and I'm worried about him. I sat back in my chair. I'd never done a missing persons case before. This thing falls a little out of my expertise, I said. I don't care, he nearly shouted. Listen, I've done my research, and you were the guy that a family friend pointed me towards. He rubbed his forehead. I can't trust just anybody with this. I'll pay you extra for your trouble, I promise. I thought it over and decided to take the case. It'd be good experience, and earning favors with the upper crust of the city might come in handy sometime. I headed home to my office and did some research. Colin sent me his father's files, and I spent the better part of the afternoon and evening looking through them. Colin's father was a self-made millionaire who owned several factories in the industrial district here in Chicago. I also saw that he had made an offer on a building in an older area of the city. I decided to go for a drive and clear my head, put on some synthwave, drive under the streetlights. It always helps me think through my problems. I found myself driving towards the factory that Colin's father had made an offer on. I'm not an idiot, so I was keeping an eye out all around me for anyone who might want to jump me. The factory was old, one of the older ones I'd ever seen. I took a picture of it, which you can see here. That's when I saw a blur of motion in the door mirror on the right side of my car. My back right window was smashed in, and the inside of my car was littered with the explosion of safety glass. I looked back to see who was attacking my car, but saw nothing. I hit the gas and sped away, still looking backwards. The street was well lit, and there was nowhere to hide, but I saw no one in the street. When I looked forward again, my eye was drawn to my rearview mirror. It revealed a man standing motionless in the street, staring at me. He was badly burned. I sped back to my apartment, shaken. I did some more research that night and saw that the factory had been a host to dozens of accidents and disasters over the years. Still, I thought, that was the case for most old factories here in Chicago. I told myself it must have just been a crazy homeless guy, nothing more. Why I only saw him in my mirrors, I didn't know. The next morning, I called Colin and told him that I was going to go to the factory. I'm coming with you, he said. I was secretly glad. The idea of exploring the place alone, even during the day, didn't appeal to me. I met Colin in front of the factory that morning, and we made our way in. It was decrepit. It looked like it hadn't been used for at least a decade. Look at the walls here, Colin said. There's soot everywhere. It was true. Black soot stained the brick of the walls. We walked into the back of the building, and I forced a door open. I jumped back and cursed under my breath. Colin peered forward and let out a slow breath. Well, you don't see that every day. It was a circular stairway that curved down 
for as far as I could see. I pulled out my phone and took a picture, which you can see here. Colin knelt down and picked up something off the ground. His hand clenched tight. We have to go down there, he said. Are you crazy? We die, I said. He held out his hand to me, revealing a small pen light. This was on the ground there. It's my dad's light. He never leaves home without it. If this is here, he must be down there. I stared at the light, then Colin, and finally shrugged. If you want to go down there, be my guest, I said. Colin flipped on the light and started his way down the stairs. They were far sturdier than I had thought, and didn't make so much as a creak as he made his way down them. I stayed up top for a long moment, but finally gave in and used my phone's light as I made my way down after him. At the bottom of the stairs, there was a corridor that led out further. I flipped a switch on the wall, and flickers of light appeared every 30 feet or so down the corridor. As we walked down the hallway, a layer of water appeared. It was just a few inches deep, but it reeked of mold and mildew. Colin brought his sleeve to his face, trying in vain to breathe through it. Okay, maybe we should come back with more. He trailed off, as his eyes caught on to something. I followed his gaze and saw what he'd been looking at. A foot and part of a leg were sticking out of a room down the corridor. We ran for it and turned the corner. It was Colin's father. He had been dead for several days at least. Colin was in disbelief. No, he said, almost a whisper. That's when I heard the sound of splashing water echo from down the hallway. My mind flashed to the night before, and I stepped away from Colin. I heard another splash, and saw a wave of water appear some thirty feet in front of me, as if someone had thrown a rock into the murky water. I pulled out my phone and took a picture, and that's when I realized what I was seeing. The area was well illuminated by the flickering lights, but I saw nothing there. But when I looked down to the water, I saw the burn man from the night before staring at me in the reflection. I edited the picture I took so he's easier to see. Here it is. Colin, I said, my voice strained. We need to go, now. Colin walked into the hallway, half in a daze. What's going on? Then he saw the reflection too. What is? The water splashed again, and I saw Colin staring at the man reflected in the water. The burn man started walking towards us. We both turned and ran for the stairs, almost falling in the water. We heard the sound of splashing coming after us, but it stopped when we reached the top of the stairs and slammed the door behind us. We made our way out of the factory into our cars. We drove until we were nearly on the other side of the city. I called the police when I finally stopped. Their full investigation ruled that Colin's father had been strangled to death. I don't know what to think. If I learn anything else, I'll update you all. We've gone to visit my wife Sarah's family every summer since we got married four years ago. They live in a small town way up in the mountains. Her parents own a lot of land, so we would spend our time riding ATVs and hiking trails. Here's a picture I took of their house a while back so you can see the kind of place they have. Not too long ago, 
I took a week off work, and we drove up to spend time with Sarah's parents and siblings. It was a good time, and the week passed by way too quickly. Sunday soon rolled around, and we loaded up our crappy old sedan for the drive home. We left her parents' place in the late afternoon, and had started winding our way down the mountain towards the highway when Sarah sighed. <sighs> Great. Check it out. She handed me her phone. It showed that the highway was red with traffic for something like 25 miles on the highway. Must have been some accident. I guess we'll be sitting in traffic for a while, Sarah said. I pulled to the side of the road and pulled out my own phone. I soon found that there was a long winding trail that cut through the mountains for nearly 50 miles that would finally rejoin the highway after the traffic ended. I figured that going slow on an old winding road was way better than sitting in stop-and-go traffic for five or more hours. Sarah was against the decision. When I asked her why, she just told me she had a bad feeling about it. Still, somehow, I convinced her that we'd be just fine. So instead of turning right and heading down towards the highway, we turned left and headed deeper into the mountains. The road turned to dirt pretty quick. Sarah jumped into the back seat so she could stretch out, and she recorded some of what we saw out the window. I was shocked at how deserted it was. I mean, we only passed one house over the entire hour, and not a single car. Sarah recorded some of the video of the drive, which you can see here. We'd been on the road for a little over an hour when we came around a hill. Up ahead, there was a single crashed car just off the road. I pulled off to the side of the road and got out to take a closer look. I grabbed my phone to call 911, but realized that I no longer had any signal, not even roaming. I took a picture of it, which I can show here. I came around to the driver's side of that car and saw that the driver's window had been shattered and there was no sign of the driver anywhere. Sarah walked to the front of the car and put her hand on the hood. The engine's cold. That means it's been at least a couple hours since the crash, right? Are we the first people to drive by? She asked. I told her I didn't know, but she's probably right, given with how few people we'd seen. Sarah pointed to the broken glass from the window. There's a lot of glass inside the car. If the driver busted it to get out, wouldn't it make sense that it'd be out on the ground beside the car? She said. She was right. The inside of the car was littered with the safety glass from the window. I looked closer and saw flecks of blood covering some of the surfaces, too. Where was the driver? I didn't like this. Not at all. I told Sarah that we needed to go, and we'd call somebody once we had a cell signal. She agreed, and we hopped back into our car. I turned the key in the ignition, and heard the rapping clicking noise that meant our battery was dead. I popped my hood and saw that there was a bunch of corrosion built up on my battery terminal. I swore under my breath. What does that mean? Sarah asked. I told her it meant that there wasn't a good connection between the battery and the motor, and that the battery was probably dead. We could fix the corrosion, but we would need a jump to get the car started again. 
I talked the problem over with Sarah. We were already dozens of miles from her parents' place, and we had no signal. Based on the car wreck, it was likely we wouldn't see any more traffic for hours at best, and days at worst. On top of all of that, the sun was beginning to get low in the sky. We needed to find someone with jumper cables. I remembered that we passed a house a few miles back on the road. I figured it'd be best if Sarah stayed with our car on the side of the road, so I started walking back up the road by myself. It took me a little more than an hour of walking before I saw the house again. The house had a strange architecture, with part of the top floor hanging over the lower floor. I saw there was a small garage in the woods behind the house. Here is a picture of the place. I walked up to the door and I knocked, calling out as I did so. There was no answer. I walked to a window next to the door and looked through. The inside was abandoned, but I saw that there was a message scrawled on the wall. I looked closer and could just barely make out the words which said, They can't see you if you don't make noise. I read it over and over. They can't see you if you don't make noise. What were they talking about? I checked my phone again, but still had no signal. I yelled out for help, but heard nothing in response. Judging by the state of the place, I figured it must have been abandoned, and for a while. On top of everything else, the sky was getting dark now. I made my way towards the garage behind the house and kicked in the door. The inside was in fairly good condition still. There was an old cabinet against the wall. I opened it up and saw some rusted jumper cables and a flashlight sitting on the shelf. I figured the battery in the crashed car might still have enough charge to jump mine, so I grabbed both of them. At this point, it was completely dark outside. I started walking back toward my car and was happy to see the flashlight still worked. I was alternating walking fast and running. Something about the house and that message, it gave me a very bad feeling and I was eager to get back to my wife. I was walking alongside the road when I heard a scuffling sound out in the woods behind me. I stopped and looked back for a long moment. That's when I saw movement out of the corner of my eye. I turned my flashlight forward, and I saw something. It was standing behind a tree. It moved its head in an erratic motion, constantly twitching. It looked like a gigantic spider with a human's head. Its eyes reflected the light of my flashlight like headlights. I heard more motion in the woods behind it and my muscles locked into place. I gripped my phone hard and accidentally pulled the volume button, which I have sent to take a picture on my phone's camera. The phone made the clicking camera noise. At the sound, the creature snapped its head in my direction and began moving around the tree. I pulled my arm back and I threw my flashlight as hard as I could behind me on the road. The creature looked back behind me and with its spindly legs, it began walking towards the flashlight. I noted that it moved quite slow. The moments it took to walk by me were an eternity, though. When I saw it was a dozen yards away, 
I started running down the road, and I didn't look back. Here's the picture I took, which basically speaks for itself. After an eternity, I reached my car, completely out of breath and full of adrenaline. Sarah opened her door and got out. Hey, did you find any help? she asked. I yelled for her to stay in the car, and I ran up to the crashed vehicle. I reached my hand into the broken window, and I popped open the hood. Then I ran around, and I pulled out its battery. I attached the cables I'd brought to both batteries, then Sarah turned the key to our car. I ripped the cables off of our battery, and I slammed the hood shut. Then I jumped into the driver's seat, and we sped down the road. Once we made it home, I told Sarah about what happened, and she began to bawl right then and there telling me that she'd heard stories while growing up about the valley that we had just gotten out of, that it was the reason she was so hesitant to take the side road earlier. She never imagined how true the stories really were. I don't know what to think now. If I find anything else out, I'll let you know. Maybe it's best to watch out if you're ever out in the Rocky Mountains. To be fair, I didn't know what to think either. Ellen was a quiet girl, senior in high school, straight B's, didn't really go on dates, didn't even really talk to boys. She has friends, sure, but not many of the male variety. She told me while I was reading in my room. In her hands was clutched the positive pregnancy test. She was crying. I felt stunned. I didn't ask about the father. It didn't really cross my mind at the time. I just hugged her after the stun faded and told her we'd be okay. I went with her to tell our parents. Mom immediately burst into tears, sobbing and shaking her head. My father went quiet, face going a few shades paler. Then he spoke up. Why are you lying to us like this? Ellen started to cry again as she shook her head. I'm not. I'm not lying. I'm... Shut up! My dad slapped the pregnancy test from her hand and stuck his finger in her face. His voice raised to a shout. I taught you better to lie to us. What is this? You trying to hide your grades from us? I didn't know how to react to that. Ellen just sobbed and ran back to her bedroom, slamming the door shut. My dad turned his rage to me next. Did you put her up to this? Do you think this is funny? I bolted next. I'd never seen my dad this angry, and I didn't want to bear the brunt of his anger. I figured when they'd calm down, they'd see reason and help Ellen cope with what was happening. They didn't. Ellen tried to bring it up the next morning, with just Mom around, but her lips pressed together firmly and she refused to answer. Ellen pleaded with her to see reason, but she just told us to pick up some things from the store on the way home from school and left the table. 
Ellen just buried her face in her hands, past tears and just confused. I patted her on the back. I told her I'd come up with a way out of this. That afternoon, I googled abortion clinics near us. I made a plan. I technically only had my driver's permit, but Ellen couldn't drive herself back after the procedure, so I figured, what the heck, might as well try to get away with it. I shared with Ellen my plan, and although she was hesitant, I convinced her this was the only way she could get out of this. When we attempted to go out for ice cream the next afternoon, Dad stopped us. I had forgotten to erase the browser history. He screamed at us, telling us we were both going too far with our little joke, and that we were grounded until Ellen confessed to lying. His face was bright red. A vein was popping out so far on his forehead, I thought it was going to pop. Dad was always hot-tempered, but I'd never seen him like this. The moment Ellen opened her mouth to say something, Dad punched her in the jaw. Actually punched her. And he's no small guy, so he hits hard. Ellen hit the floor. I saw her spit up a bloody tooth on the ground before she started sobbing. I dragged her by the arm as Dad screamed after us how we weren't leaving his house for anything but school until we came clean. I helped clean up Ellen's mouth, wiping away the blood and managing to sneak down for some frozen peas to press against her jaw. She shook her head and looked at me. I'm pregnant. You believe me, right? It didn't really matter if I believed her or not, because she was. Over the next few weeks, Ellen would be nearly knocked over with morning sickness. Morning sickness is giving it too much credit. She had days where she was slumped over the toilet, unable to keep much of anything down. If Mom caught her, she'd just say Ellen had the flu. If Dad caught her, he'd call out her prank and make her get dressed for school. It was hell, actual hell, and I could only stand by and watch. Ellen wasn't sent to the doctor for prenatal care. I did my best with school computers to research how to help, but the help of a 15-year-old isn't exactly much help. I wasn't a medical professional, after all, and that's what she needed. As her belly swelled, Ellen became a joke of the school. Rumors spread about how she slept with one of the teachers to pass her class, or that she had no idea who the father was, because she'd do it with anyone who would take her. To her credit... Ellen didn't ever respond to these rumors. She'd just simply carry on with how she had. I think sometimes even Ellen would doubt her own pregnancy. I'd catch her staring in the mirror, running her hands over the bump with the most quizzical expression, like she had no idea what was really in there. And no, the baby bump didn't convince my parents either. My mother began to restrict Ellen's food intake, saying that she really needed to watch her weight, even though Ellen had probably never been over a hundred pounds her entire life. It was incredibly messed up to have to sneak her food every night so she wouldn't be starving. 
Sometimes it'd be leftover lasagna from dinner. A lot of the time it was only like a pack of raisins or a snack bag of chips. It didn't matter. Ellen was always thankful. Despite our screwed up situation, it did help me and my sister grow closer. We were just at that difference in age that it wasn't easy for us to really bond, but I was the only one that really stuck with her. As she became more and more obviously pregnant, her few friends drifted away or simply stopped talking to her. Months passed. Ellen graduated with passing grades and looked positively enormous, even with the graduation gown. She smiled during pictures, and I think that's one of the last times she sincerely smiled. Now that school was out, though, there was no leaving the house. We were prisoners in our own home. I could only get on the computer with mom or dad lurking nearby, so no more pregnancy research. I had to rely off the notes I'd managed to take during the school year. I'd keep moving them around my room so that my parents couldn't find them. When Ellen went into labor, I thought my dad might kill her. Ellen was on the couch moaning in pain, begging dad to call an ambulance. She needed to go to the hospital, but he just stood there, his arms crossed, and he glared down at her. Enough's enough. You are not pregnant, he snapped. He wasn't going to get help. He wasn't going to let anyone get help. What happened next is something I should have done a long time ago. I attacked my father. Seeing my sister in pain while my dad did nothing was what sent me over the edge. I grabbed a pair of scissors off the computer desk and charged with a banshee yell. I didn't kill him. I was tempted, but I didn't. I got him in the arm, and as he toppled back, I helped Ellen off the couch and got her into her room. We didn't have locks on our door, but I blocked it off with a chair and prayed that that would be enough. Ellen laid on her bed, clenching her sheets and screaming as another contraction shook her tiny frame. The whole thing was a blur, really. I held my sister's hand until she nearly crushed it. I got her old baby blanket out of the closet, and I told her that she could do this. Her screams shook the windows. At least I thought it was her screams shaking them, but I realized that the entire house was shaking. I remember thinking that this would be the time for an earthquake when I realized it was time to catch the baby. My niece was so tiny, so still. Her skin was tinted blue, and I thought she was dead, until she opened her mouth and cried. My sister looked up at me, her face white as a sheet and covered in sweat. I did my best to clean off the baby and wrapped her in the blanket, handing her to my sister and smiled. I heard footsteps behind me, and I felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Had my dad gotten in during the insanity? I turned around. I can't describe what was behind me, only that it was tall. Its head brushed the ceiling. The room seemed to grow dark with its presence, its features hidden by a black cloak that brushed the floor. I nearly jumped out of my skin when it spoke, 
its voice low and ominous. Is the child healthy? it asked. I gulped. I, I think so. My sister looked up, and relief poured over her face. You're here. I thought you wouldn't make it, she said, a true smile crossing her face. I would not forget you. The creature crossed to the bed and gingerly picked up my sister. I caught a glimpse of what was under the cloak's hood. Strangely, I think he was rather beautiful, with dusky blue features and eyes pure black. He nodded at me. She'll carry a form of your name, child, and for your kindness. He pulled a small pouch from his pocket, setting it in my hand. I undid the string and sparkling gold pieces poured into my hand. The strange man walked to the closet. Opening it up, I could hear my niece squall and my sister excitedly tell the stranger how happy she was to see him. The door closed behind him, and I got to my feet and opened it up. There was nothing there, except for a few of my sister's dresses and some mismatched shoes. I sunk to the floor, wrapping my arms around myself and allowing myself to cry as my dad finally broke in. I've never seen my sister again, although sometimes late at night I can see a small child peering in from my closet. She has my sister's eyes. Nearly my whole life, I had a frequent, strange occurrence. It wasn't until recently that I discovered the cause. I'll try my best to recount these events as precisely and coherently as I can. I remember the first time it happened. I was sitting in my seventh grade history class, idly twirling a strand of hair while Mr. Robinson was writing on the whiteboard. I felt a tiny drop on my shoulder so small that if I had actually been paying attention in class, I would have never noticed it. I instinctively put my hand on my shoulder to wipe away the wetness, but to my surprise, it was dry. I glanced up at the ceiling, expecting to see a leak. Nothing. I made a quick turn and looked behind me. There was nothing other than an empty desk. Years passed, and I never gave that incident another thought. Until it happened again. I was perched up on my bathroom counter, both knees on opposite sides of the sink, examining my face for any blemishes, and it happened. The drop hit my shoulder, the same spot, with no evidence it was ever there. Not a tiny speckle of water was on my shoulder. It was completely dry. I had told my mom about the strange event that just took place. She simply glanced up from the book she was reading, took one look at my face, and said, Honey, what have I told you about picking at your face? You're as red as a tomato. You'll grow out of pimples, but you can't grow out of scars. She was right. 
The pimples went away as I got older, but the dripping never did. It wasn't frequent. I'd feel the familiar drop every two or three years, just enough so I could never think I'd made it up. I'd learned to drive, gotten a dog, gotten married, bought a home, and had two children all the while the drops kept falling on my shoulder. It was never a problem, mostly just a mild inconvenience I'd assumed was a side effect of stress. But eventually, things got worse. I was sitting at work when I felt the drop. I rubbed my shoulder out of habit, then felt another drop pass straight through my hand and land on my shoulder. It had never happened twice before. I found myself glancing up at the ceiling knowing that nothing would be there. After that day, the drops became a monthly occurrence, then weekly, then daily. I was going to doctors on all types of medicine and still, nothing changed. My husband, Todd, grew more concerned with every day that passed. Thud. Well, it's real to her. I, I want solutions, not theories, not sympathy, no more pills. Solutions. I grabbed Todd's clenched up fist off the table. His knuckles were white with the force he landed them with. Please, Dr. Shannon, I assure you, I'm not making this up. The doctor sighed. I understand, but we've tried countless treatments. We've exhausted every option. I could see Todd's jaw clenching up. I breathed in deeply, trying to maintain the peace. Is there anything else we can try? I could hear the pleading in my own voice. The constant dripping was driving me crazy. I just wanted it to stop. The doctor crossed her legs and sat up. Well, we do have a few more options, but you have to understand that with these things there are certain... She stopped mid-sentence, mouth still slightly agap, eyes still focused on mine. Uh, Dr. Shannon. The edges of her lips began to twitch. A small gurgling sound was coming out of her mouth from somewhere deep in her throat. Something about it was inherently wrong, unnatural. Her pupils dilated as she slowly raised her hand and pointed a finger at me. I sat there frozen, horrified by what I was seeing, but unable to look away. What the... Todd muttered under his breath as he opened the door to the hallway and called for help. Dr. Shannon's eyes rolled to the back of her head. As she continued to point at me, the gurgling sound becoming louder, angrier. Another doctor walked into the room and quickly made his way to her. Just as he reached her, she began speaking very quietly, repeating the same thing over and over, voice still gurgling, finger still pointing. Duermete, niño. Duermete, ya. Que viene el lobo y te llevará. Todd shook his head as we made our way down the hallway towards the exit. These doctors are idiots. I mean, really. She had the audacity to call you crazy when she's clearly the one with the issues. I normally would have laughed, but instead I placed my shaking hand in his. My mother used to sing that lullaby to me. Todd looked down at me. You mean that crap she was saying? I nodded slowly. It's a song. 
meant to scare children to sleep. If they stay awake, the lobo will get them. Lobo? It means wolf. Todd let out a small chuckle as we reached the exit. I wish for a moment I could be as unfazed as he was, but something felt wrong deep in my gut. I felt the rain as soon as we stepped outside. The hell? I moaned as I fumbled around in my bag, looking for my umbrella. I could feel my clothes already getting damp. I thought we were in for a sunny weekend. I snapped open the umbrella and caught Todd giving me a strange look. Maria, it's not raining. I laughed a little before I realized he was serious. I outstretched my arm and saw it was dry. N no, no, I can feel it everywhere, Todd. He gave me a sad look, full of pity I didn't want. I can feel it. Even the umbrella was no help. The drops were all over me. I slapped my arm, slapped my leg, slapped every bit of skin I could see, but the drips didn't stop. It was too much to handle. I broke down in tears, collapsing to my knees as Todd dropped down to cradle my head in his arms. I just wanted to stop, I sobbed. Todd rubbed my back gently, quietly whispering next to my head. What's wrong with me? I cried into his shoulder for what felt like hours. After I had calmed down, I wiped the tears and snot from my face. I'm sorry, I sniffled. Todd whispered something just quietly enough that I couldn't quite hear it. What? I asked as I pulled back to get a look at his face. His eyes were white, and he was pointing at me, whispering. Todd, stop it. I pulled myself out of his arms, but he just sat there frozen, whispering quietly. This isn't funny, Todd. He didn't even blink. I leaned in to hear what he was saying. He was repeating just one word. Lobo. My heart skipped a beat. The world fell silent. Todd sat there quietly, still pointing, and in a moment of horror, I realized he wasn't pointing at me. He was pointing behind me. I gathered every bit of courage I had and turned around. I vomited when I saw him. He was darker than the night sky and stood nearly nine feet tall. His arms stretched out twice that length, with faces filling in every twist and turn. Faces full of anger, hate, despair, and agony. Faces that deformed, rotted, and then reincarnated right before my eyes. Out of all the faces, his was the worst. It was as if he'd found a wolf, cut off its face and plastered it onto his. He reeked of death and decay. Something deep within me knew that this was an ancient being. It was instinct. Every fiber of my being was screaming for me to get away. He reached out towards me, and I sat there frozen in fear as his arms tripled in length. 
I knew I should have ran, should have screamed, should have done anything. But all I could focus on was the face at the tip of his right arm. My face, twisted in a million different ways. What happened next was a blur. I wish I could say I remember how I got away, if I got away, but I don't. I just remember suddenly being held in my mother's arms, and I'm ashamed to say I punched her. She forgave me, of course, being in the state of fear and confusion I was in. I remember the doctor muttering how unbelievable this was under his breath. I remember countless tests, but I'll never remember anything quite as vividly as I remember him. My name is Maria Avida. I'm 13 years old. I was in a coma for four months. A leak saved my life. A leak right above my shoulder that had only been dripping for 12 minutes. The doctors called it a miracle. After hearing my story, my mom claims it was her lullaby that woke me. I had imagined 30 years of my life, of my husband, my children, all of it, in 12 small minutes. I'm here to warn you, if you ever feel a drip you can't explain, or perhaps a small breeze no one else can feel, wake up. The lobo is lurking, and he's itching to gain a new face. I'm a retired professor of psychology from Wellington University. The following is my story regarding my time there, in particular, my time with Calvin Dowler. I taught a psychology class of more than 75 students, who ranged from freshmen to seniors. The classroom itself was one of those theater-like rooms that you see in movies. The chairs and their built-in boards ascended to the top of the room. Naturally, my more inattentive students sat in the very back, which is to say they sat at the very top, in the darkness. You see, I liked my classroom's lighting a certain way, dimly lit. Any deviation from that interfered with my lecture. I couldn't, and still can't, concentrate with bright lights. My first assignment was to have the students write an essay on the topic of psychology, of course, the prompt was, what do you think psychology is? Some of the essays they turned in were great. Others were expectedly half-hearted, and some were never turned in at all. But Calvin Dowler's essay, my, my, it was almost as if he'd written it before and knew what was expected of him. Needless to say, I gave him full credit, and he was the only one that got the perfect score. Mr. Dowler was an excellent student. Superb. Although I informed the class that I don't take attendance, he always showed up on time and never missed a day. Never. He always walked in class with a wide grin on his face, 
giving the same greeting. Morning, Professor Coyle. He was of average height, was physically fit, with dark brown hair and a baby face. In the beginning of the semester, he seemed to be able to make friends with the other students with ease. But then time progressed, and with that comes change, sometimes for the better, and sometimes for the worse. As a professor of psychology, I'm quite good, and in fact certified, for evaluating individuals. Sometimes that's my job. Mr. Dowler was an intelligent young man with an above-average IQ. I know this because he once told me he watches Rick and Morty. Isn't that something the kids say these days? All jokes aside, let me get back to my story. I began to notice odd behavior in my classroom. Not from Calvin. He remained the same, his happy self. I noticed that other students gradually moved farther away from them. At a time, Calvin sat at the front of the class, listening intently to every word I professed, along with several other students. This day, however, he sat in the same spot alone. The other students sat somewhere else entirely. Why are they neglecting him, I thought to myself. One night, as I sat in my kitchen grading papers, the assignment this time was to write about a childhood experience that the students believed helped shape who they are now, whether it be in a positive or negative way. And then I read Calvin Dowler's essay. I picked it up as I always did, with excitement and genuine anticipation. Like I said before, he was a great student who never failed to impress me. But this must have been a mistake. As my eyes raced down the page, my heart began to beat rapidly. His essay was inundated with curse words and detailed, gory descriptions of some event. One line read, I tried to catch her, but she was too fast. She hit me in the back of my head pretty good. Gotta give her that. There was blood everywhere, but I just sat there laughing like a lunatic. Whether or not these words actually transpired, I don't know. The week before the end of the semester was what I like to call the opening of the floodgates. That's because some of my students would come to my office during office hours to ask me their questions before the final exam, hoping to somehow salvage their grades in one week. My office hours were late. They began at 6 p.m. and ended at 7.45 p.m. The students didn't like this, of course, but they also didn't like failing the class. One student named Adeline walked in. She was also one of my top performing students, so I wasn't surprised to see her walk in, showing up late to get some extra help. She also happened to be one of Calvin's friends, or former friend now. I couldn't help myself. I took the opportunity to ask her why she and the others were ignoring Calvin lately. Professor, Calvin's... he's not who you think he is. I don't want to say too much. I actually don't want to get involved if you don't mind, she stuttered. She didn't look at me when she said that. She was implying something. I didn't know. 
There are several reasons why someone won't make eye contact with you in a conversation. That includes emotions of fear. So, I let it go. I responded with, That's fine. I didn't mean to be a bother. I just found it strange because you all seem to be getting along so well at the beginning of the semester. Adeline wasn't the last student who visited me during office hours. One student after another came by to ask questions and get help before the exam. And then Calvin showed up. It was 7.53 p.m., and my office hours were now over. But I made an exception for Calvin. After all, he was my best. But I also wanted to ask him some questions myself. He walked in and sat down, with his eyes on the floor the whole time. Before I could speak, he let out a quick, Sorry. Pretending to be ignorant, I tilted my head, waiting for elaboration. I think I sent you something in place of my actual assignment. That was an accident. I didn't mean to turn that in. I have no idea how it got mixed up in there. It's fine, Calvin. Here you go. I handed back to him his foul, gruesome, curse-filled essay. He then, unexpectedly, got up and headed for the door. I asked him where he was going. Is that it? Are you sure you don't have any questions before the final? Nope. I'll be fine, he said. I didn't get to ask him my questions. Mainly, why did he write that in the first place? It was dark outside by the time he left, but I didn't leave just then. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I began to connect the dots, sitting there at my desk as if I was solving some sort of mystery. Students have shunned him, including his best friends and his study group. He accidentally sends me this sadistic letter. Even now, I have no idea if it's true or not. Moreover, he always had on this fake smile, this forced personality of happiness, but lately he's been showing antisocial behavior. Adeline seemed horrified when I asked her about him. So what's going on? Maybe the kid's a psychopath, but how did I miss something like that in one of my own students? Nonsense. He's just going through a phase. A very weird, unusual phase. As I sat there thinking about this, I noticed the time. 8.34 p.m. I grabbed my coat, switched off the lights, locked up my office, and I left the building. I got in my car and started the engine. I drove off, speeding through the empty streets. I made a sharp turn, spilling my cold, forgotten coffee all over the passenger seat. When I arrived at the next stop sign, I took some time to clean it up a little. That's when I noticed Calvin's letter, the same one I just returned to him a few minutes ago, sitting in the passenger seat. I was shocked and confused. As I continued driving, I adjusted my rearview mirror, only to find that a wide, male grin had filled it.
I took the babysitting job because I was a broke college student. I'm sure many of you currently fall into this demographic, or you have in the past. My first two years consisted of ramen and crappy dining hall food. Instead of going out on the weekend, I'd blow off the week's stress in front of Netflix. I'd catch a glimpse of my ghostly reflection on my laptop screen. The pale contours of my face looked miserable, but I needed money. When I returned to school from break this past year, I began looking for jobs. I didn't want to tire myself out working long hours, so I was quite happy to accept a babysitting position in a nearby affluent community. The pay was good, and the hours were reasonable. I was a bit surprised when I drove into the gated community. I had to double-check the address that was listed. Yep, this was it. These people were certainly not poor. You'd think these people would have hired a nanny or something. I found my destination. A large, Tudor-style home, about halfway down the row of mansions. I decided then and there that I really wanted this job. These people probably had some valuable networks they could introduce me to. The interview went surprisingly well. The parents were a bit high-strung, but they were cool for the most part. They said they needed a few nights off from their busy lives, which was understandable. Their child, Nicholas, was just shy of two years, but I could tell he was raised well. While his parents were chatting with me at the dinner table, Nicholas sat quietly in his mother's lap, looking at me with a curious expression. At the end of the interview, I had a chance to play with Nicholas, while his parents closely reviewed my resume and references. You've made quite the impression on us all, the father told me as he led me out. He glanced over at Nicholas, who had his arms stretched out toward me. What can I say? I love children, I replied. I smiled at Nicholas. We'll play again soon, okay? When can you start? The mother asked, hopefully. I told her I was ready to start whenever. Babysitting is a pretty sweet gig, especially when the child is as well-behaved as Nicholas. The plan was I'd come over after class around five, the parents would say their goodbyes, and I'd hang out with the kid until they came home no later than ten. I'd leave their house with a good amount of cash and a smile on my face. Easy peasy. The first night went well. He didn't fuss over anything I cooked for him, which was a big plus in my book. After dinner, he quietly sat in front of the TV while I did my homework. Around eight or so, I gave him a bath and tucked him into bed. He didn't resist at all. There wasn't even any bargaining, or any five more minutes please I was used to from the other kids I babysat. I rewarded Nicholas's good behavior by letting him pick a story to read off the bookshelf. I read Peter Rabbit aloud until I heard his deep, heavy breathing. At this point, I had a few hours to myself before the parents came home. I grabbed the baby monitor and went downstairs. A girl, a few years older than me, was sitting at the kitchen table. We both gasped at the same time. Who are you? She demanded, her hand going toward her phone. She had an accent I couldn't quite place. I think it was from one of those small European countries. Belgium, maybe. 
I'm the babysitter, I replied. The girl went, oh, and went back to doing something on her laptop. I waited for her to say something else. I'm sorry, but who are you? Eva, Uper. Sorry, don't speak very good English. I felt kind of weird about this. Why didn't the family inform me that they had an au pair? The girl was heavily preoccupied by her laptop. It was as if I didn't exist. Ava caught me staring at her and smiled pleasantly at me. Nicholas is sleeping, she asked. I nodded my head. I just put him to bed. I shifted my weight uncomfortably. Hey, if you don't mind me asking, where are you from? Austria, Ava said curtly, then returned her attention to the laptop. It was like talking to a brick wall or an NPC, I thought randomly and giggled at the thought. I sauntered into the living room and plopped down on the couch. The more I thought about it, the more suspicious I got. I've read enough stories to know where this one might end up. It was like that one with the clown statue, where the babysitter puts the kids to bed, then calls the parents. She tells them everything is okay, but was wondering if she could cover up the clown statue in the bedroom, because it was giving her the creeps. The parents promptly tell her to call the police, because they didn't own a clown statue. Oh, a shiver ran down my spine. What if I called the parents, and they told me to call the police, because they didn't have a new pair? I decided to call the dad, hoping that I wasn't about to be a part of my very own horror story. He picked up on the first ring. Hey, everything okay? How's Nicholas? Yeah, everything's fine. Nicholas is in bed fast asleep. I lowered my voice. I was just wondering, do you guys have a new pair? There was silence on the other end. I suddenly felt lightheaded. You mean Ava? Yeah, she's been living with us for a few months now. The blood was flowing back into my face now. Quiet little thing, isn't she? Sorry I didn't introduce you two. She'll stay out of your way for the most part. We made some small talk and then he hung up. I felt a little relieved, but I was still curious about Ava. I turned on the TV and watched it a little bit. My mind kept wandering back to Ava. Relax, she's part of the family, I thought to myself. Then, why did something feel out of place? I was dying to find out more about her. Like, was she the new kid at school or something? My moment came. I'd left the baby monitor on the kitchen table where Ava was sitting. I could hear her chair scrape across the floor as she got up. I turned the volume on the TV down a few notches. I could hear Nicholas lightly sobbing. It sounded like he was having a nightmare, and Ava was responding to it. I listened to the sounds of Ava's footsteps as they faded away and up to the second floor. I jumped to my feet and crept into the kitchen. The au pair's laptop was still open and unlocked. I realized that what I did next was a huge breach of privacy. I snooped through her computer. She had an open tab of a web page in a language I couldn't understand. I minimized that and came across a slideshow of pictures. The first was a girl who looked my age, 
She had dark hair and brown eyes, and was looking into the camera with a neutral expression. On one side of the slide was listed her name, birthday, address, etc., followed by what looked like her resume. When I hit next, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. There were more pictures of the girl, but her face was so beaten up, I had trouble identifying her. The pictures got worse and worse as her body got more and more mutilated. Toward the end, there was so much blood on her broken body that I presumed her dead. I resisted an urge to vomit. I listened carefully for Ava's returning footsteps, then hit next. There was a slide of another girl, formatted much like the first one. On the next slide, she was hanging from a post with her hands tied above her head. There were cuts and bruises all over her body. I kept scrolling through these horrifying images in shock. There was a before and after picture of yet another girl. The first one showed what appeared to be a pan over her abdomen and a coal on top of it. In the following picture, the pan had been removed. And where it had been, there was a bloody mess of flesh, muscle, and bone. A rat was burrowed into the wound, its whiskers dripping with gunk. The fourth victim was drawn and quartered. The fifth had been burned to a smoldering pile of ash. Finally, I got to the end, and I had to resist the urge to scream. There, on the computer screen, was my picture, and all of my personal information. There was an email attached to the slide. With shaking hands, I clicked the hyperlink. It was from Nicholas's dad, and it read, This one's the last one for a while. Nicholas is going to start questioning where all his babysitters go. February 11th. Let me tell you the secret of the century. Being a single parent is hard. Yeah, of course, it's worth it and all that, but I'm not sure how anyone does this for 18 years. Shift at the hospital, hurry home and check on Tommy. Four hours of shut-eye, tops. Then another eight hours working retail, rinse and repeat. It's awesome. With a schedule that tight, you think I'd froth at the mouth for the chance to get some extra sleep. But lately, my insomnia is getting real bad. The circles under my eyes are starting to look like a permanent fixture. When Tommy's crying is ringing in my ears, and I feel like I'm about to shatter into little pieces, there's only one outlet. Late night TV. Infomercials, to be exact. More infomercials than you can count. Sitting in front of the ghostly blue glow of the screen is just about the only thing that helps distract from a one-year-old's incessant wailing. 
Yeah, yeah, before you revoke my good parenting card, I'll have you know Tommy cries over nothing. The kid's fed and watered, and he'll scream like it's the end of the world. There's no feeling quite like slipping into a near-fugue state at two in the morning, with the words, Buy now, and we'll throw in a free pack of refills, ringing around in your head, like ping-pong balls ricocheting in an empty room. At some point, if you're lucky, you'll slip into unconsciousness and wake up with your face mashed into the couch. I've pretty much seen them all by now, cataloged them into my head. There's the blender that promises to make meal prep 5,000% more efficient, the hairdryer from heaven, the neck cushioner that'll cure your arthritis, the vacuum cleaner that connects to Bluetooth and probably can sleep with your wife, a hundred perky men and women going on about weight loss pills, as well as makeup and kitchen knives and towels that'll revolutionize your life. No, really, we promise or your money back. Well, I'll accept one. Last night, I saw a new infomercial that I'm still not quite sure if I hallucinated or not. It was maybe three in the morning, and my mind was throbbing, pulsing inside my skull. I'd all but given up on sleep. The blonde woman on the screen had just finished her spiel about cubic zirconia jewelry, and then this way too catchy jingle was blaring from the TV. Spleeno! Spleeno all your worries away! Spleeno! Spleeno makes a better today! It was a chorus of high-pitched voices, I think. Something childish you'd hear in a toy commercial. The lyrics to the jingle flashed across the screen in fat, cartoonish letters. Next, there was one of those before montages. You know, the clips of people cracking eggs onto the floor or groaning about their bad back before the miracle product swoops in to save them. It was pretty standard, a black and white shot of a young woman applying mascara in the mirror, making an exaggerated mess of it by smudging it all over her eyelids she frowned at the finished result. The camera zoomed in on her clumped-together lashes. The whole time, this glum, almost comically sad tune played in the background. It transitioned into a full-color scene of the woman beaming into the mirror. The words, Spleeno, hung above her head, and the music was now generically upbeat. Look, I hadn't slept in around 36 hours, and I'd started to feel like my brain was melting out of my ears. So I don't know what I saw. But it sure as hell looked like this pretty girl bought a pair of tweezers up to her eyelids and began to pluck out her eyelashes, one by one, all with a TV-ready smile splayed across her face. No time-lapse or anything. It might have gone on for five minutes or fifteen, when it was finished, she almost looked normal, but if you looked close, you could see her completely bare eyelids. The infomercial ended with the Spleeno jingle playing again while the woman beamed into the camera. She picked up a tube of mascara, looked at it, then tossed it aside. It was so strange that I figured it had to be a parody complete with an after-montage of overacting and smiling. I know this sounds crazy, but afterwards, 
I felt almost relieved, like some small weight I didn't even know was there had been taken off of my shoulders. Then Tommy's crying started up again, and the feeling was lost. February 13th. I saw it again last night, honest to God. I actually did pass out for around an hour before waking up, feeling like absolute crap. I peeled myself off the couch to check on Tommy. He was sleeping for once, so I promptly returned to the living room to tune into my favorite channel. I watched the same toaster infomercial twice before it came on again. When the jingle started, my heart sped up. Spleeno! Spleeno all your worries away! Spleeno! Spleeno makes a better today! Whatever this was, it had one hell of a catchy tune. The kind that crops up in your mind at the worst moments. Call it morbid curiosity. I wanted to see what was going to play this time. It was too early to be an April Fool's prank, but maybe it was all a joke by someone with a seriously weird sense of humor or promo for an upcoming movie. The jingle ended, and the colors quickly faded to black and white. I watched as a middle-aged man came on screen. He was dressed in his pajamas, his hair tussled in a TV version of a messy bedhead. He stood in front of the mirror and cupped his cheek with a grimace, then opened his mouth to inspect his teeth. They were yellow and crooked, some of them sitting at angles that looked downright painful. I could see black spots of rot on his molars. He poured a cup full of mouthwash and gargled, but his face creased as if he was in agony, and he quickly spit it all down the drain. The scene shifted, and the now technicolored man was dressed smartly in work clothes, his hair slicked down with gel. Spleeno danced across the screen in burning pink letters. The counter was littered with teeth. He looked into his mirror and smiled, revealing a completely toothless mouth with raw, bloody gums. I should have been disgusted, but that reaction never came. Instead, I was fascinated. The man didn't look to be in pain. He seemed almost elated. And why shouldn't he be? His pain was gone. I wondered how he felt, light, carefree. I felt a little scared for feeling the way I did, but I couldn't deny it either. Afterwards, I stuck around to watch a mattress commercial, but found that my eyes closed of their own volition, and I finally fell into shallow, dreamless sleep. I woke up feeling unsatisfied, like I'd had some unfinished business in a dream, but couldn't remember what. February 17th I've stayed up every night since Tuesday, and it hasn't come on a single time. I know what I saw, but at the same time I'm starting to doubt myself. Maybe I dreamed it all up. Either way, I haven't slept a minute in three nights. I almost crashed the car during a milk run for formula and diapers this morning. Tommy is driving me up the wall. I could swear he wakes up and starts sounding off the minute I get home. 
and shuts up once I'm at work. God, I wish I had money for a sitter. Just one night of peace and quiet might be enough. Nothing around me seems solid anymore. It's like the world is slipping away, and there's only me, a sack of blood and bones, dragging itself to places that feel like hollow imprints. I know I look like crap, but I'm finding it hard to care anymore. I wonder if this is how people lost in the desert feel when they see the last mirage of cool water. February 18th It came on at one in the morning. I can't explain it, but the moment I heard the first notes to the jingle, I felt a wave of relief crashing down on me. The world felt real again. I kept my eyes glued to the screen. There was an elderly woman this time, walking down a set of stairs to that same sad tune. With her coiffed gray hair and red sweater, she looked like a character out of a Christmas movie. The sweet old lady about to serve her grandkids chocolate chip cookies with a smile. She wasn't smiling now, though. Each time her right foot made contact with the steps, she winced, quickly shifting her weight to her left. Bad knee. Once she got down to the bottom, she rested on the banister and caught her breath. The next few clips showed her hobbling around the house. I realized it was the same one the others were shot in, and clutching at her kneecap every few seconds. Right then, it was as if I could feel the pain shooting up my leg, too. I wanted her to be free of it. I wanted to feel light again. I watched as the TV cut to a close-up shot of the old woman sleeping in bed. Her gray hair was spread out on the pillow like a halo. The camera slowly pulled out, revealing the rest of her nightgown-clad body and the smooth, round stump of her right leg. I noticed it had been severed just above the knee, and it looked to have healed completely the skin intact except for a line of white scarring. I examined her face. With her mouth curled into a smile, she was the picture of tranquility. I couldn't help but smile myself. Her pain was gone now, discarded with the unbearable weight of all that putrid flesh. For the first time in a long time, I felt at ease. Perfectly content, even. I kept smiling as the jingle ran again. Spleeno. Spleeno all your worries away. Spleeno. Spleeno makes a better today. I didn't sleep for the rest of the night, but I kept grinning anyway, enjoying the way those words rolled off of my tongue. February 20th. Yesterday was the best one yet. I didn't go to work, just in case I'd miss it while I was gone. Tommy was crying as usual, and he was as annoying as ever. But I didn't let that distract me this time. I kept my attention on the TV. The infomercial came on around midnight, earlier than usual. 
It featured a man and his dog, a golden retriever. Even with grainy quality, I could see that it was a beautiful specimen, its coat sleek and its eyes bright. Too bad it just wouldn't shut up. Its barking went on and on all through the night, and my heart clenched with sympathy as the man groaned and clapped his hands over his ears. The bark seemed to grow in volume until it was unbearable. I shook my head as the man tried a pair of earplugs to block out the noise. I knew all too well those didn't work. Tommy's cries could penetrate through anything. I was on the edge of my seat, waiting for what came next. The black and white gave way to color, and the man went from tired and groggy to well-rested. He got up from bed and stretched, then went to the kitchen to fix himself a cup of coffee, humming the whole time. As a stream of coffee poured into his mug, I noticed a large yellowish mass lying on the kitchen floor. The dog's body looked broken, and its head was stained with a bloom of red. But the man's newfound happiness was so infectious that I hardly paid any attention. The now familiar Spleno hung above the pair, I realized my face was wet with tears of joy. The man had gotten what he wanted. Silence. The tears kept coming even after the screen went black. Spleno. It's a wonderful sound. A wonderful word. It takes all your worries away. Makes you realize you have to hold on. And if something's standing in the way then you have to get rid of it. That night, I slept like a baby. is my favorite time of year. I always leave my porch light on during this gracious season, but I never buy any candy. The kids don't know that until they run screaming down the steps, usually tripping over each other as they fight selfishly for survival. You see, I just love to put on a scary mask from my ages-old collection before I open the door. I'll look through the peephole to see my guests then I'll jump out and render their hearts to mush right in their chests. They rarely ever chant the whole trick-or-treat before they are falling over the porch. It gives me a good laugh while I'm waiting for the next unsuspecting children. The doorbell rings and I hastily choose a different mask to scare this new set of victims. I look through the peephole and what do I see? It's nothing more than a single boy. He can't be more than ten years old, donning a cute, makeshift ghost costume. He seems to be trick-or-treating all by his lonesome. No parents or friends anywhere around. <laughs> Poor thing. 
I take off my mask and grab a special piece of candy from the decorative table under the nearby window. I open the door and I hear a stuttered, trick trick or treat. I smile and offer him the candy. He reaches out to take it and I pull away. I tell him he can only have it if he eats it right now. He hesitates, but eventually he complies with my request. He lifts up the white cloth veil, revealing flushed red cheeks and fresh, glossy eyes. Now excited, he grabs the candy, rips off the wrapper, and nearly swallows it whole. Again, I smile. What a delightful boy. I ask him if he liked it, and he nods his head. But that nod of his begins to dull, and his eyes start to close. His legs are trembling before betraying his body and relinquishing their hold. He falls to the wood of the porch hard. I pick him up, and I carry him inside. Oh, I do love the trick-or-treaters to scare them as they come to my door, but what I enjoy most of all is when they come alone. Because when they come alone, I get to add a new mask to my collection. Some of you may or may not know what urban exploration is. Urbex is basically the idea where you break into abandoned buildings, facilities, warehouses, etc. for the sake of either a good spook or just a genuine adrenaline rush. Since this action is particularly illegal, urban explorers usually tend to go at night. I'm not an ordinary adventurer, I'm also an artist. I've been a graffiti artist for approximately 10 years and counting, but due to recent events, things may be subject to change. So I've practically scoured every square foot of my city. I live for this kind of thing. Countless drunken nights involving cigarette butts, empty beer cans, and amphetamines. I'm what lurks in the night while the rest of you are sound asleep in your soft and cozy beds. Don't fear, though. I usually do not want anything to do with your wallet or your home. As long as you refrain from dialing 911 and you mind your own business, we're cool. This particular location piqued my interest while wasting my employer's time and money looking for new spots to paint via Google Earth. It's such a fascinating tool. It's really revolutionized the world of discovery, although it takes away from some of the mysterious aspect in a way. It seriously saves me time trying to discover these places manually. About a five-hour drive north out of the city, according to the coordinates given and a trip planner. No big deal. I got paid vacation, and I could not wait another four days to start my journey. I made the decision to leave sick from work and prepare myself for the drive so I could leave first thing in the morning the following day. Morning came and I've never been more excited to road trip in my life. Stacking paint in the trunk of my car, I swung by my local pusher's crib and picked up a little something. From then, I began my long trip. After endless miles of road winding road, 
that followed the curves of the mountain pass. I came to a road that seemed correct, according to where my GPS could take me. You can only pinpoint a destination to get you so far via automobile, so I had to improvise the rest. Turning off the highway pass, I pulled up to one of those safety yellow gates that stopped cars from accessing the road further. Thanks to my handy bolt cutters, I broke the chain sealing the gate and swung it open. I closed the gate after pulling through to avoid any unwanted attention, and I made my way down the steep upward dirt road that went further up the mountain into the woods. God, I drove what felt like an hour down this mundane road. I felt as if I drove any longer. I'd end up in the clouds before reaching the access point to my destination. The path eventually became too rough for my all-wheel drive car to handle, but this was anticipated. I managed to come across an offset where I could pull over and safely park my car. At one point, I could imagine that this road was intended only for diesel engine off-road vehicles to access since the driving conditions were very severe. Then again, I didn't have the slightest clue what I was getting myself into. By this time, it was about 4 p.m., and the sun was starting to descend behind the congregation of trees that towered over me. I could see the warm breath trailing from my lungs and evaporating into the cold autumn air as I hiked the remainder of the way. As I proceeded further up the mountain, I noticed the trees surrounding me seemed to lean over, as if they were watching me, like a rat in a maze. I brushed it off as a little paranoia due to the mind-altering substances I had consumed. There I was, greeted by a chain-link fence, perched across the top of the fence was coiled-up razor wire. This didn't deter me since I always carried sharp wire cutters in my bag. I clipped a hole in the fence big enough for me to easily squeeze through and discreet enough for no one else to notice the security breach. Trekking through the plowed-out dirt road clearing leading up to the facility, two silos stood tall and menacingly overlooked the giant industrial building that sat alongside them. The exterior of the warehouse was a rusted and aged dark burgundy, similar to dried blood. My heart began to race as I drew closer. This place was gigantic. As I approached a metal door, I reached into my pocket and pulled out a cigarette. After taking the first pull, I inspected the door to notice that it was already kicked in. My first guess was that there may have been squatters, which I'm always prepared for, but this was puzzling. Why would there be people holding up all the way out here? The nearest civilization is at least a two-hour drive alone, so I couldn't imagine how long and exhausting the walk out here would be. My second guess was that it's already been scavenged, which would be a disappointment. It's definitely more rewarding to know you're the first human being to explore a place that's been abandoned for probably longer than I've been alive. I double-checked to make sure I had my box cutter and switchblade on me, which I did, and I proceeded through the broken door. The smell of damp, rusted metal and mold ambushed me as I ventured further inside. Tall, windowless walls blocked any natural light from making its way indoors, I reached into my back, pulled out my headlamp, and turned it on to better inspect my surroundings. I was partly correct on my first assumption. Crude, illegible writing with an industrial solid paint stick 
was scattered across the walls of the dark corridor. I passed by a few doors which just led into an office, a bathroom, and a break room. Following that was another steel fire door with a sliding bar lock. I pulled the lock mechanism that sealed the door and opened it up. Upon opening the door, a wave of foul, rotten odor came rolling into the corridor from the room ahead. I gagged and wheezed. My mouth began to fill with saliva as I forced the stomach bile back down my esophagus. The putrid smell resembled rotting carcass being burned alongside an old tire. I didn't allow this to deter me. I moved onward, and eventually my nostrils became used to the horrible stench. Warm air brushed against my exposed skin as I passed through the threshold of the door, as if someone had an industrial heater running. Obviously, this wasn't the case, as there wasn't any power running through the building at all. I found this rather odd, due to the fact that it was mid-November at the time, and I was just freezing my ass off moments ago. I don't know why that didn't throw up any red flags at the time. To be honest, I think I tried to just come up with some logical excuse to the significant temperature change. I digress. In the center of the room stood a giant cylindrical industrial pump, with all sorts of worn and tattered hoses connected to it. Each hose seemed to trail off into different directions, porting into surrounding rooms through some sort of irrigation system. Surrounding the pump was a conveyor belt that led to a small hole that carried on into the room ahead. This whole thing was fascinating, so in my mind I said to myself, I gotta write my name on it. So I proceeded to climb the structure of the pump to reach my arm out with a can of paint to get to the most visible point possible and make my mark. Upon climbing up to the summit of the large machinery, I peered down into the pump. Light from my headlamp illuminated the idle reservoir. It looked like a residual, thick black tar-like liquid sitting at the bottom. What came off as strange was that it appeared to be in motion, almost as if it were alive. I shook it off and proceeded to leave my moniker on the exterior of the pump. Dwelling on the idea further, I disregarded the notion to find a nice clean wall to paint. Instead, I decided to indulge my curiosity and further explore the factory, starting with following the conveyor belt. The conveyor belt extended through the north and south part of the room. I decided to take the southern route first, as I came from the northwestern corner. Walking along the wall which the conveyor belt ran through, I found a door that allowed me to traverse over. I was ambushed again by the smell of burning rot. Sweat headed down my face as the temperature was now well above my comfort level. The first thing I noticed was the source of heat and possibly the smell. A furnace. Bright red embers flowed from behind the grated door to the large industrial incinerator. I now became anxious, as there should be no rhyme or reason why this thing should be active let alone burning whatever it's supposed to get rid of. What also confused me was the security of the thing. It was surrounded by an iron cage that rose all the way into the ceiling. I didn't know what to think of it, honestly. Anxiety turned into fear, and fear turned into panic. I finally made the decision to hightail it out of there. I pulled the door I just came from, but it didn't budge. In a wild fury of horror... 
I repeatedly yanked and pulled on the handle to the steel door, but my attempts were fruitless. Stepping back, I noticed the hole in the wall that led the conveyor belt through to the previous room that was my way out. The room seemed to get even hotter as my increased heart rate allowed my blood to circulate rapidly throughout my body. It all felt like a nightmare. I scrambled toward the hole in the wall and got flat down on my stomach, army crawling my way through it. My torso made it to the other side when I noticed the sounds of gears whirring in unison. A loud hum, followed by the ignition of what sounded like a generator flooded the room. I felt the electricity pulsate throughout the conveyor belt as the belt slowly started to engage, pulling me back towards the incinerator. Adrenaline and pure survival instinct kicked in as I squirmed as quickly as I could in an attempt to escape my impending doom. It was a difficult task trying to squeeze the body of a full-grown man through a nearly two-foot hole. What made it even more challenging was that the belt was coated in that black, disgusting sludge which resembled the same substance inside the reservoir of the pump. Luckily, I made it through, rolling on the hard concrete floor gasping for air. There was no time to rest. I needed to get out of this place as quick as humanly possible. Hastily, I made my way back towards the northwest corner of the room from which I came. I stopped dead in my tracks, frozen in shock as I struggled to decipher what was before me. The door, it was gone. The hairs on the back of my neck stood straight up. I could feel all the blood rushing to my head. I sprinted to the adjacent corner which didn't do me any good. I started to circle the perimeter of the room, looking for any passageway. Luckily, I found a door that I didn't seem to notice before. I pushed through with enough force to take down an NFL lineman. It gave way with easily half the effort, but I wasn't going to take any chances. Before I passed through, I turned to see that not only was the room now starting to be illuminated by the overhead fluorescent bulbs, but the large industrial pump started to engage, and the conveyor belt was operating in full function. The door slammed hard behind me, and I was now standing in another long corridor. My heart was now pounding hard on my chest, as if it had a warrant for my arrest. This hallway was not dark like the last one. Something had gotten the power running. The building screeched and growled. The humming of the industrial lighting hovered above me, like a swarm of flies. Crude scribbles covered every square inch of the walls beside me in an endless pattern, each symbol perfectly resembling the next sequence of illegible text. Following the long hallway, looking for the green glow of an exit prompt, I found myself standing in front of a door that stuck out like a sore thumb. Finished wood with a golden handle, the door was in pristine condition. I cautiously turned the handle and stepped inside. The room was also covered in the same scripture. Even the ceiling was completely filled. It was so flawlessly executed, I couldn't help but have a slight amount of admiration for the detail. There was no furniture, but on the wall directly across from me in the center was some sort of glyph inscribed in the wall like a centerpiece. The room itself felt soundproof. It was so silent, I could hear my blood circulating through every vein in my body. 
The glyph on the wall ahead of me seemed almost as if it were breathing. There was a shut eye that was imbued into the crest of its design. My legs carried me closer as my eyes stayed fixated on its simple yet composed design. Soon, I found myself within arm's reach. My hand extended out, and I could feel heat radiating from it as I reached out to touch it. The eye in the center shot open, and there was a blinding flash of light. Pain pulsed throughout my entire body, and it burned as if I had been tossed into a fire. Within that same moment, my vision started to return. I hadn't moved, but the glyph had vanished, replaced with the smooth dark brown finish of wood paneling in its place. My body spun around, and it almost seemed as if I were in a whole different area. The room looked familiar, but there was no scripture on the walls. It all looked brand new, as if I were thrown back in time to when this place first came to be. The loud machinery pounded through the wooden door head as I made my way back across the room. Approaching the door, I put my ear up against it before turning the handle. Anxiety once again took hold of my body. The growl of something sinister passed by as I was going to open it. This nightmare I had seemed to fall into was getting more terrifying by the second. For a moment, I started to sob. All hope seemed to be lost, but I was stubborn. There wasn't any explanation that my mind could decipher which would ease my distress. The only thing I could do was survive. The sounds faded, and I cracked the door open to peer into the hall. Again, all the writing had been replaced by the polished metal, wood paneling, and smooth concrete floor. I waited for a moment, then slipped out the door and went the opposite direction from which I came. The pipes above gave promise that they had to lead somewhere out of this place. I had no general direction I was heading, other than blindly following the only lead above my head. Proceeding down the hallway, I kept my head on a swivel. The last thing I wanted to do was have an unexpected encounter with whatever creatures occupied this facility. I just wanted to slip out unnoticed and get as far away as I possibly could. After a few turns, the pipes led me down a giant double-swing door. I pushed my way through carefully, and my eyes widened at the horrific sight before me. The ceiling rose as high as the building would allow, hanging from the top was some sort of giant chandelier-looking device. Countless bodies were attached to it, covering every inch of the hanging object, which made it appear as if it were a cocoon of human corpses. Each of them hung upside down, dangling from their feet like wind chimes. Their necks were sliced wide open, allowing all the blood from their bodies to drain into the giant collection funnel below. Attached to that funnel were the pipes that hung over me and led back towards the previous room. If I hadn't been so strung out on drugs, I'd have passed out right then and there. I walked around and examined the gruesome harvest when I suddenly heard the swing of the door I came in from. Faster than a leopard on crack, I lunged behind a stack of crates on the other side of the room and hid. 
Giant hairy hands reached out and peeled off the bodies that had ended their yield of blood and were replaced with fresh ones. I cringed and averted my eyes before I could catch a glimpse of the creature, but I heard the sounds of tearing flesh, followed by the heavy stream of liquid making its way down the pipes of the collection machine. The same sinister growling and gurgling I heard earlier echoed from the creature as I heard the door swing shut behind it. One thing I was grateful for was that I did not catch a glimpse of whatever the hell was responsible for these heinous crimes. If I did, I probably would have dropped dead from a heart attack right then and there. Once I knew the coast was clear... I exited through a door on the opposite side of the room. Blindly, I ran through the next corridor and down a set of incredibly large stairs. It started to get hot, not just hot but humid as well, like a small bathroom after a long steaming shower. Sweat spewed from every pore in my body as I sprinted into the darkness. Eventually, I was completely surrounded by shadows. Slowing down to a steady walk, I reached up to turn my headlamp on again when I stepped straight through a giant stringy spider web. The web was thick and heavy, nothing that seemed natural to spiders in this region. I scratched and pulled at the strong silk that covered my body. It felt as if I were trapped inside a fishing net. My headlamp shined onto the tuft of web that now laid on the floor. It glowed in the light, the color of ivory and stretched across the twelve-foot-wide dirt tunnel, I now discovered I was inside. The muffled, familiar thumps of the industrial pump overhead caused specks of dirt and pebbles to come raining down on me as I approached the end of the tunnel. I came to a gaping hole just about another fifty feet further and felt a horror so immense that English words couldn't even come close to describe it. The hole was a passageway to a large cavern underneath the factory. Massive webs as thick as rope were spun all around the cavern, entangled between stalactites, wrapping around the sharp structures of calcium hanging from the ceiling like icicles. Surrounding the floor were what appeared to be egg sacs that were stacked like boulders well above my head. Green pus oozed from small orifices like infected wounds on rotting flesh. In the center of the cavern was a gigantic arachnid that nearly consumed the entire area of the cave. Its long legs were curled up underneath its body, with its head pointed downward toward the ground. Tubes protruded from its mouth, leading upwards into a passageway above. Snow-covered fur covered its entire body and head, nearly blending in with the thick, silky webs that surrounded it while it was in a deep slumber. My skin must have turned pale, as pale as the spider's fur, as I stood there paralyzed in fear. I was in the den of something so sinister and otherworldly that my brain could barely comprehend what my eyes projected. That's when I heard it. Weak, muffled screams came from the corner of the den. I crept in its direction as I didn't want to disturb this slumbering beast. 
The sounds of distress grew louder and more furious as I approached a set of green eyes buried in webs. My heart nearly jumped out of my chest. I pried and pulled on the webs that were tightly wrapped around its captive. The spider stirred a bit in its sleep as I ripped at the thick, silky bindings. I managed to get the webs from around the prisoner's face, and I was surprised to see that it was a young girl. Help me. Please help me. She shrieked weakly. The giant arachnid once again stirred in its slumber, and I held my finger up to my mouth, gesturing her to keep quiet. I flipped out my switchblade, and she shuddered a bit in fear. My sharp blade managed to easily slice through the webbing, and soon enough she was freed. Tears rolled down her cheeks as she wrapped her arms around my neck and squeezed tight enough to make me choke. She was nearly nude, only clothing she had on were tattered rags that hardly covered below her waist. I noticed the stream of dried blood that had come down from underneath her garments. Within a millisecond of her release, the beast's eyes shot wide open. Its long furry legs extended outward, as its torso still stayed locked to the cavern floor. An ear-shattering screech escaped from its mouth, as it spewed out blood it had been feeding on through the tubes. The spider's legs repeatedly stomped into the ground with enough force to shake the entire cavern. Stalactites fell from the ceiling, piercing through one of the large egg sacs that lied below. Hundreds of fist-sized spiders came pouring out of the opening onto the floor. Still hanging on to me, the girl went completely limped and nearly dragged me to the floor as the black ocean of hatchlings flooded in. I tossed her unconscious body over my shoulder as I bolted toward the cavern's entrance. A giant leg came crashing down beside me, and the force nearly knocked us to the ground. Making a final lunge through the cavern's opening, another leg slammed against the wall overhead and caused rubble to fall, blocking the entrance behind us, as I barely evaded our impending doom. Picking myself up off the now blood-soaked ground that set about an inch thick and rising, I grabbed the girl and beelined toward the stairs. Passing through the collection room and back through the hallway towards the room I emerged from initially, bursting through the door. I sat her down and turned to close the door behind me. A giant appendage with a large human hand squeezed through the door as I attempted to get it shut. I couldn't match the creature's brute strength as it managed to squeeze its head through the opening. The face resembled a man's, but had eight glowing red eyes. Giant fangs protruded from its mouth as it snarled, and white gooey slime streamed down from its gaping mouth. Leaning into the door, I grabbed my switchblade and jabbed it into one of the monster's eyes. It screeched as it retreated from the opening, allowing me to get it shut and sliding the lock into place. At this point, I was operating on pure instinct. I had no clue why I cornered myself back into this room, but if I'd gone any further, that thing may have ended it for both of us. Looking around the room for any sign of a way out, I got an idea. The glyph itself was only drawn on the wall. Since this dimension lacked the same inscription, why couldn't I just change that? The door behind me began to slam repeatedly. I could hear the cracking of wood as the hinges were ready to give way. 
From my bag, I retrieved a can of white paint and ran over to the spot where I remembered touching the glyph. Thanks to my creative memory, I managed to recreate the same image I'd seen before. This was a long shot, but it was worth a try since the only other way out of here is on the plane of death. I scooped up the girl and walked over to my design, placing my hand over the open eye I'd painted in the center. In that moment, the door burst open and several of those humanoid spider creatures began to crawl in. Following them were those disgusting hatchlings that came from the cavern. They flooded the walls and spun in little menacing circles as more and more flooded the room. Shutting my eyes tight, praying to any god that may listen for some sort of return, I felt something land on my open shoulder. In that second, my hand became burning hot as it trailed throughout my whole body. Everything seemed motionless. My heart pounding against my chest was the only noise I could hear. As I slowly opened my eyes one at a time, I didn't even notice the spider on my shoulder as it hissed in my ear. A swipe of a hand knocked it to the floor, and I brought my foot down hard against the little creature's body, crushing it under the weight of my boot. That's when I realized I was back in the room from which I came. I let out a deep sigh and adjusted the girl who was slowly slipping off of my shoulder. Not even bothering to look around, I made my way back to the room with the pump and sure enough, the entry door was back in place. A wave of relief flushed throughout my body as I pushed through the door and out into the cold night's air. Leaving the property and squeezing us both through the fence, I stopped and set the girl down against the base of a tree. I sat there for a minute and collected myself traumatized by the horrors I had just succumbed to. Removing my sludge-soaked jacket, I wrapped it around the girl, and soon after she began to regain consciousness. Hey, are you okay? I asked softly as her eyes slowly opened. Her first expression was fear. Then as she realized where we were, it changed to relief. It hurts, she groaned as she wrapped her arms around her lower stomach. I know, we have to go though. Can you walk? She nodded at me and slowly made her way to her feet. The girl was barefoot, so I let her lean against my arm as we took our time getting back to the car. By now, the sun was starting to rise and an orange glow radiated through the congregation of trees. We made the entire way back in complete silence. I had so many questions but I figured it could wait until we both were comfortable. We approached the car. I helped her into the passenger seat. After firing up the engine and making our way back towards home, I gave in and I broke the silence. How in the world did you get there? She nodded and shrugged her shoulders, still holding her hands against her lower stomach. Were you hurt? What happened? Why didn't they just eat you like the rest? I prodded, not giving her enough time to answer. I didn't yield any response to my barrage of questions. She only groaned and clenched her stomach tighter as she rested her head against the window. 
Reluctantly, I didn't push for any more answers, and we continued on in silence. The entire ride, she'd just moan and wiggle around in pain. Never once did she mention a word of what happened to her. I don't know if it was due to shock, or if she just couldn't muster up the courage to relive those experiences. Either way, I felt like it would have been a harsh move to pester the poor girl. Once we got into town, the groans turned into screams. Her nails were digging so hard into her lower torso that blood started to show as they broke through her skin. I already intended to get her to the hospital, but now the anxiety was setting in. Unsure if it was due to the high levels of amphetamines I'd have consumed throughout the day, or the fact that this girl was now screaming at the top of her lungs just two feet away from me. Regardless, I put the pedal to the floor and recklessly made my way to the ER. We skidded into the emergency entrance of the hospital. Within minutes' time, I was greeted by two associates rolling a wheelchair out. I unlocked the door, and they grabbed her out of the car and took off. In a moment of panic, I made the decision to get out of there, since I had no connection to the girl, and I'd rather not involve myself with any police or hospital staff. Needless to say... I'm glad I left, because on the ride home I looked over onto my passenger side floor, and what I saw made me sick to my stomach. Sitting on the floor was a stream of that thick blood-soaked silky web. A sickening thought crossed my mind, that those creatures, the ones we encountered in that otherworldly realm, they had more than just feeding on their agenda. I'm writing this to you now as I pack up the majority of my belongings. Whatever happens, I don't want to be anywhere near this place. And for those who happen to be around when those things' sinister plan unfolds, well, good luck. Hi there. I hope you don't mind an old man rambling here. My grandson pointed me to this site after I told him what happened the other night. He says I have a responsibility to tell the world. Easy for him to say. He's not the one risking a trip to the mental hospital. First off, some background. My name is George. I'm a retired linguistics professor and the proud owner of a clever golden retriever named Max. We live alone in the hills just outside of town. It's a great place to live, especially if you like the outdoors. I take Max for walks all the time. Well, not at night. Not anymore. Last Friday, at around 10 at night, Max whined and scratched at the door. I was getting ready for bed, but I could not ignore a friend in need. After all, how would I feel if someone locked the bathroom all night? I threw on some tennis shoes and walked out the door. Normally, I would have grabbed a leash, too, but Max is pretty well-trained, and I didn't think he would need one. Boy, was I wrong. It was a chilly and foggy night, so I hoped Max would make it quick, but he was in a mood to wander. He walked down a nature trail connected to one of the neighborhood roads. Max would stop and sniff things, but had no interest in using the bathroom just yet. 
After half an hour, I decided to put my foot down. Now, Max, you're going to have to go or hold it till the morning, I told him in the sternest voice I could muster. Max licked my hand, flashed a dog smile, and kept on walking. No wonder my students used to call me Professor Easy. He finally found a tree stump to his liking and went over to do his business. Suddenly, he noticed something in the bushes and just took off running. Max, I yelled as I ran to the edge of the overgrowth. Get back here. I was just about to chase after him when he comes bouncing back. In his mouth was a small backpack. He dropped it at my feet. At first, I didn't know what to make of it. It was the size of a child's pack, but it was leathery and didn't have any cartoon designs or anything like that. I almost undid the strap to see what was inside, but then Max ran off again. This time, I plunged in after him. If the pack really did belong to a child, I wanted to help any way I could. Hopefully, I would be there in time to rescue him or her, but I also braced myself for a possible gruesome discovery. What I ended up finding wasn't exactly gruesome, but it was weird. There was a small hole in the ground with a wooden frame supporting the inside of it. I bent down to have a closer look, and that's when I saw a tiny pickaxe. But that's not all. The dirt surrounding the hole was fresh. I brushed some of it aside and found more tools. Shovels, rope clamps, even a few candles. All of them were miniaturized, like they were made for someone smaller than any human child. Max began to whine at me to leave. I left everything there except the pack. I took that with me. I wanted to see what was inside. After we got back home, I began to think rationally about it. Clearly, this was a child's play area that Max had now destroyed. I felt bad about this, so I opened the backpack to see if there were any identifying characteristics in it. Inside were more tools and a small notebook. I smiled at myself, at the cleverness of the child who had made these things. Max, however, wasn't as impressed. He kept whining at me and even barked a couple of times. I admit to losing my temper a little bit and shooing him into the kitchen, where I closed the door. I sat down with a magnifying glass and examined the notebook. The pages were filled with a made-up language. The letters didn't resemble anything I'd ever seen. This child had a vivid imagination. But try as I might to convince myself that it was all a children's game, I couldn't help but think that there was something more to it. I tried to decipher the words on the page. Eight hours and a sunrise later, I was still working on it. Six days. That's how long it took me to complete one sentence. Of course, once I translated a few words, the rest was easier, relatively speaking. I can now say I have a good understanding of what the book said. And for all of you, I have one message. Prepare. The notebook was full of plans. The first stage discussed exploration of the upper world. What times were best to visit? What sort of creatures to watch out for? Dogs included. What food was good to eat? The second stage discussed invasion. How to surprise the enemy. How to kill even the tallest ones. And most alarming, how to overwhelm them with numbers. Their number system is something I still haven't completely deciphered. But from what I can tell, the creatures have a population of about 45 billion. And every single one of them will be surging through holes around the Earth sometime soon. When, you ask? Well, that's another tricky question. Their dating system is quite complicated. It could be next week, or it could be next year. For the time being, I'm enjoying long walks with Max in the middle of the day, and now I always have him on a leash.
long time ago, a hunter lived alone in his cabin, deep in the woods. He would have been absolutely alone out there, no one around for miles, had it not been for his three dogs. They were his hunting dogs, his companions. Nevertheless, he was the only person around. Living so alone in such a cold, damp place, the old man found himself hungry one evening. He grabbed his rifle from the wall, called his dogs, and went in search for food. Hours he searched through the forest, his dogs ever silent, ready to lay eyes on their prey. Yet, there was none. No deer, no boar, nothing. With a frustrated and maybe a bit sad grunt, the man turned toward home and made his way back heavy-footed. Suddenly, he caught sight of something hanging from a nearby tree branch. It was a dark, slender thing, covered in matted hair. It swayed back and forth in a casual way. It was the tail of a sleeping creature hidden in the tree. Desperate, the hunter took aim and fired at the animal, hoping to fell the big thing and turn it into a meal later. But to his dismay, the creature with the great big yow scrambled away. Even still, the bullet had cut through the creature's tail, causing the thick thing to drop to the ground with a plop. The hunter, too tired and hungry to be any more disappointed than he already was, he grabbed the tail and hurried on home with thoughts of stew in his mind. When he made it back to the warmth of his cabin, he stoked the fire, stewed up a fine broth, then threw in the skinned tail. Needless to say, the hunter ate well that night and soon found himself dozing off by the fire in an old rocking chair. Where is it? The man awoke to a start. There was a voice coming from inside the cabin. Where is my it called in anger. Frightened, the hunter grabbed his gun and called for his dogs. He pointed the weapon into the darkness of the far corner where the voice was coming from. Give me back my tailipo. Something unseen began to claw at the wooden floor. The man could barely stutter out the words in his fear as he commanded the dogs to attack. They began to bark and snarl. The creature hissed and yowled, and soon something large and dark somehow squeezed into a small hole in the wall and escaped out of the cabin. The man, still fearing for his safety, opened the door and let the dogs continue the hunt. They ran off deep into the woods in pursuit of the strange black creature. The hunter stood on his porch, waiting for the triumphant barking the dogs would make when they made their kill. But it never came. Instead, the hunter was met with deathly silence. He waited for several more hours, calling his dogs by their names one at a time. Eventually, two of them returned, with their tails between their legs. The third dog never returned from those woods. The man went off to bed, 
The day had been long, hard, and frightening. Surely the dogs chased that creature far enough away that he could get some peaceful rest. Not long after the clouds covered the few stars in the night sky, a sound erupted from within the cabin again. It came from just outside the hunter's bedroom door. Taily Po, my Taily Po, it called. It was the same haunting voice from before. I know you have my Taily Po. I don't have it. Leave me be, the man uttered a reply. It's here. I can smell it. The unseen creature answered. Afraid as he was before, the man called for his dogs, which once more gave chase. The creature fled out of the cabin, slamming open the front door with its weight, and disappeared into the woods, the dogs nipping at its heels. The man, though, did not leave his bed. He stayed, waiting for his dogs to return. And eventually... One of them did come back. It was shaking, cold, letting out a weak whimper here and there. The hunter grabbed hold of his gun and didn't let go of it for the rest of the night. The next morning, his hunger returned twofold, and he was forced to take his remaining dog to go search for food once more. That morning, a thick fog had rolled in, he could barely make out the tree branches above him, let alone his own hand. He pushed on, a growling stomach his only motivation. When he heard it, he stopped dead in his tracks. It was a voice. It came from all around him, and nowhere, all at once. Taily Poe, give me back my Taily Poe. It demanded... I said I don't have it, the man called out into the nothingness. The dog, still cowering, ran off in a desperate fit of anger, or perhaps survival. As he did, the cracking of leaves just ahead signaled the presence of the large creature running away. The man took the chance to turn on his heel and run back to the cabin. Once he made it back, he barricaded the door and prayed that the next sound he heard would be his lost dogs pawing at the door. But something told him they wouldn't be back. The day passed by slowly and silently. The hunter didn't move from his bed, gun at his side, and stomach moaning with hunger. When the night came, when the moon was at its highest point in the dark sky, a voice rumbled from within his very own room. It was at the foot of his bed. You have my Taily Poe, it said to him, now sounding less angry and more excited. I, I told you, I've nothing of the sort. The man covered his face with the blanket, too scared to reach for his own rifle, the only thing he had to defend himself. Give me back my Taily Poe, it howled. And all at once, the creature pounced, 
sharp teeth and razor-like claws tearing at flesh. Miles into the woods, screaming could be heard, the sound of an old man in pain, begging for his life. Then, only after everything was quiet for a good while, a different voice emerged, a low and satisfied voice that said, Tailipo, now I have my Tailipo. favorite parts about being a middle school history teacher is the living history assignments we give at the end of every school year. Kids are supposed to sit with their grandparents and videotape, voice record, or transcribe their oldest memories for posterity and for an easy way to bring up their GPA. I've been doing this for 17 years, and when I collected the projects this time around, I assumed they would be as dull, if not duller, than usual. This had not been a particularly bright class. So I went home, poured myself a glass of wine, and prepared myself for a long night of, I only owned two pairs of pants when I was your age, and my brother got beat with a newspaper for hitting a baseball into the neighbor's yard. And, of course, these projects were peppered with innocent, old-person comments that were so horribly sexist and racist, you just had to laugh. Now, I had a girl in my class whom I will call Olivia. She was pudgy, quiet, and proved herself a consistent B student. I expected her project to be as unremarkable as her. And perhaps that's why I was so profoundly disturbed by what I witnessed that night. Olivia had submitted two discs for some reason, so I began with the one marked Interview. My screen hiccuped twice before a grainy image of a living room came into view. The place was a hoarder's hell. Olivia was curled up in an armchair clutching a notebook and looking like a scared animal. Across from her sat a man with a somber countenance, smoking a cigarette and staring at her expectantly. Go ahead, a woman's voice whispered from behind the camera. Olivia's owlish eyes flashed towards the screen, then back to the man. I'm here with my great-uncle Stephen, she began almost inaudibly. He's going to tell us about his oldest memories from being in the army. Great-uncle Stephen looked like he'd rather be in a trench at the moment but he waited patiently for the questions to begin. Not surprisingly, Olivia read verbatim from the suggested question sheet I had handed out to the students. He answered her curtly. Once or twice I heard her mother whisper, Speak up, Olivia, from behind the camera. <sighs> Typical boring crap. So I was intrigued when Olivia set down the notebook and asked, Did you like being in the army? That was totally off-script. Great-Uncle Stephen emitted a chain-smoker's wheeze. 
<clears throat> nope. Glad to get out of my town, though. Where did you go? Balkans. Uh hmm, she said. I doubted she knew what the Balkans were, and my suspicion was confirmed when she asked. Was, uh, Balkis very different from here? Yeah. Mom cleared her throat from behind the camera, perhaps encouraging Great Uncle Stephen to be a little more forthcoming. But Olivia seemed genuinely interested. Uncle Stephen, she asked, what is your very worst memory from the army? The old man crushed his cigarette in the ashtray, then slowly lifted himself out of the chair. I'll be back he mumbled. Then the camera cut off. When the screen flashed back on, everything was the same except Great Uncle Stephen had several pieces of paper and plastic sleeves laid atop all the crap sitting on the coffee table, one he held in his hand. I was a kid when I enlisted, he said, looking at Olivia. Your brother's age, he told her. Olivia nodded. I never saw combat. Both of my deployments were to cities in Eastern Europe that had been destroyed by civil wars. Everything was a mess. I felt like a freaking janitor. <clears throat> Mom coughed. <sighs> Great Uncle Stephen sighed and looked at his papers. My unit was assigned to a school that had been obliterated by all the violence, broken windows caved-in rooms, and for some reason the part that got to me the most was that the school had been like this for years before we got there. No one had lifted a finger to try to fix it. I saw kids walk by it on their way to go beg for money, or whatever crap they did. The camera dipped towards the floor as I heard Mom whisper harshly at Great Uncle Stephen. I couldn't make it out what she was saying, but it wasn't hard to imagine. Do you want to hear this story or not? I heard him bark in response. Then you better let me tell it how I want. Mom, Olivia chimed. Please, stop interrupting. Are you presenting this in front of the class? No, Mom, we're just handing it in to the teacher. I'm sure he's heard worse words before. Great Uncle Stephen contributed helpfully. I wasn't a he, as a matter of fact. But other than that, the statement was accurate. The camera was lifted, and after a couple of blurry focus adjustments, the shot was the same as before. Uh, I'm talking too much anyway, he grumbled. He lifted the piece of paper in his hand and close to his face. In the basement, I found this letter. I didn't know what it said, but I had a buddy of mine translate it. So I'm going to read it now and then I'll tell you what I saw in that basement. A chill ran down my spine. Mom zoomed in to Great Uncle Stephen and his letter. His palsied hands trembled as he held up the paper, and this is what he read. Dear Sir, I never loved my country. So many of these skirmishes are born from patriotism, a power struggle for the shards of a once great empire. But I don't care what name my home has on a map. This fighting is senseless, and I stay as far away from it as I can. It was not these attacks and disorganized violence that took the lives of my wife and child. It was illness, 
Mercifully, it happened quickly for the baby. Nadia suffered longer. I watched in horror, knowing I could do nothing for them. My only solace was that I was there for them every step of the way. I stopped going to work one day, and no one came after me. I doubt they noticed I was gone, since the school was simply across a field, visible from my window. It would have been easy to go for a few hours each day and come home quickly to care for them. But what was the point? All I did was clean floors. I was as useless to the world as I was to my family. I tried to take Nadia to the hospital, but the journey was too long and taxing. I brought her home and she died that night. After Nadia and the baby were gone, well, I don't remember much. I didn't leave my hovel, barely ate, barely slept, thought many times of taking my own life. Tempting though it was, I felt paralyzed by my own helplessness. The one thing that kept me sane was my radio. I never turned it off once, even though I didn't listen to the words being said. In fact, the channel I got the clearest was in English, I think, which I don't speak a lick of. But the voices, the music, and the true knowledge that life existed beyond this violent city sustained me. I've no idea how long passed before I saw the light of day again. I was dizzy from hunger, so finding food was my priority. My radio came with me, of course. Since I first hold myself up, it has gone everywhere with me. It talks to me as I sleep, and as I wake. I don't know what it's saying, but I know I would die without it. Once I had some water and food, it occurred to me that the only thing left to do was go back to work. So I did. The following morning, I simply returned to the school where I was a janitor, and I got back to work. Nobody made a big deal of it. Like I said, Nadia had been sick for a long time, and those who worked at the school knew it. I appreciate that no one had pestered me to come back to work during the hardest days of my life. The teachers never said much to me, but we smiled at each other in the halls, and that mutual respect was perhaps the reason I decided to come back at all. The place had gone to the dogs without me, so I simply grabbed my broom and rags from my closet and set to cleaning. Everyone is grateful to have me back, I know, and the best part is that nobody minds my radio. I bring it with me everywhere, and I keep the volume low enough not to disrupt the students. No one has ever complained. In fact, I suspect that they like it. The schoolhouse is not very big, but does require a lot of maintenance. The floors are always sticky and stained, so I spend most of my time mopping. Kids make messes, and I guess that's why I'm still in the business. Sometimes I have to move things around to make sure I get every spot on the floor beautiful and clean, but I take pride in that. And the repairs... The school always needs tune-ups here and there, and I'm happy to help. Some days I'm reconstructing an old desk that broke as I whistle along with the radio.
Other times I handle more serious, structural issues. Days when I have to work like this, I feel truly instrumental, like a cog in a larger machine. How could this school survive without me? It took me a long time, but I once again feel that I have purpose. There's a larder behind the school that's full of preserved food. In lieu of payment, I'm allowed to take as much food as I need. That arrangement is fine. What would I do with money anyway? I used to bring the food back to my home, just one field away from the school. But when I started sleeping in the basement, no one seemed to notice. This school, it's special to me, and I cannot leave it unguarded. When I'm besieged with memories of my wife and baby, I turn up the volume on the radio to drown out such thoughts. It works for me every time. Except this morning. Because this morning, I woke up to dead silence. I frantically examined the radio to see what had happened. I honestly can't tell you how many days in a row I've been using it. Did it simply live out its life? and die naturally. I've spent the entire day trying to fix it. Most of this time I've been crying. I'm losing my mind without it. I've given myself until sundown. If I can't fix it by then, I'm going to take my life. I'm writing this because the sunlight is starting to die, and I know what my fate shall be. I've thought about taking one last walk through the halls of my school, saying goodbye to the students and teachers. I know I will be missed, but I cannot bring myself to leave this room. I can't go anywhere, knowing that my radio is dead in here. There are no more tears in me. It feels now like I can't catch my breath. I vomited what little food I had in my stomach. And I'm growing dizzy again, like I did after Nadia died. I am not long for this world. But, before I take my life, I've closed the door to this room and stuck a chair beneath the handle. It's the only room in the basement, and has a small casement that lets in just enough light for me to see what I'm doing. If anyone is kind enough to come looking for me... They should not be met with this gruesome sight. Perhaps they will see the door is blocked, smell my rotting body, and simply forget I ever existed. But I've placed both my radio and this note outside the door. Kind sir, if you're reading this, I have one humble request. Please fix it. Save my radio. It did not deserve to die in its sleep, and I am ashamed that I cannot revive it. Now I'm ready to join Nadia and little Ludmilla in heaven. I hope this school can find another janitor who loves and cares for it the way I do. The hour is now. Do not forget my radio. Stanislav When Mom zoomed back out, Olivia had tears in her eyes. Thank you for sharing, Uncle Stephen. Mom said her voice choked. I think we have enough. Wait, Olivia chirped. He said there's more. What did you find? Before Great Uncle Stephen could open his mouth, 
the image disappeared. My jaw dropped. Was that it? What did Great Uncle Steven see? I promptly remembered that there was a second disc. This one was unmarked, but I hoped it contained the rest of the interview. There was no video, only audio. The voice that started up was Olivia's. Hi, Miss Jarity. I'm sorry about my mom, but she refused to record the rest of what my uncle was saying. But I asked him to continue and secretly record the story as a voice memo on my phone. I remember you said earlier this year that history is written by the people who win wars. She sucked in a big breath, then commenced crying. But everyone's history is important. Even if they're sad, pathetic people, and even if they've never won a single thing in their life. I haven't slept through the night since I finished this project, but you have to hear what my uncle has to say. There were tears in my eyes, too. The sincerity of her words was beautiful. I was also flattered that she had remembered some trite phrase I threw around, because it was what my history teachers had said to me. Before I got too sappy over it, the audio began again. Fine, came Mom's frustrated voice. If you want to hear the rest of the story, fine, but this is not appropriate for a school project. Let me finish, Great Uncle Stephen snapped. If it's too much for you, help yourself to a snack in the kitchen. But Olivia wants to know what happened. I heard her mother mumble something and walk away. Olivia and her uncle were now alone. I imagined her looking at him expectantly. So, did you find the radio? Or did it get ruined when the school got blown up? He rasped and I heard the distinct click of a lighter. That letter, he began slowly. It had a date on it. What date? She inquired hungrily. It was dated two weeks before we began rebuilding the school. But didn't you say the school had been destroyed like two years ago? Yes replied Great Uncle Stephen. It had been. There was silence as I felt goosebumps on my arms. The images that came to my mind were almost too overwhelming to express, but Great Uncle Stephen put them into words effortlessly. Clearly, he had spent his whole life thinking about it. This man, this Stanislav, went to a vandalized, falling-apart schoolhouse and cleaned up blood and rubble like it was spilled drinks and dust. He smiled at dead bodies in the hallway and believed they were smiling back at him because they liked his radio. He moved around corpses so he could sweep the ground under them. The roof was half collapsed, so when it rained, he must have gotten soaking wet, but he was so oblivious that he didn't feel a thing. I could hear Olivia crying steadily. I found the larder he was talking about. It was all pickled, preserved food that probably tasted like crap. Most of the stuff was moldy. Did... did you see the dead body? Yes. Hanging from the ceiling. But still, amazingly, lifelike. He wasn't rotting away. This hadn't happened years ago. Did he look peaceful, she asked, a chord of desperation in her voice. 
couldn't tell you. The smell was rank, and his face was blue, and his eyes were bulging, like this. I imagined him demonstrating. Uh, and the radio, Olivia wept. I heard Great Uncle Stephen take a long drag out of his cigarette. It was there, all right, and it was still on. There are only a handful of events in your life that you remember where you were. For many Americans, such as myself, 9-11 was one. For the older generation, the assassination of John F. Kennedy was another. For me, it was the day my parents died. I hope no one has to go through the pain I went through that snowy January evening. And if you have the unfortunate luck to have experienced that kind of trauma, then my thoughts are with you. I was close with my parents. My father, a college professor, always told me about the importance of getting good grades and staying in school. My mother, a nurse, always told me to help others in their times of need. They were perfect role models for me. And the day they died, it was the day a part of me died as well. Their car slid off an embankment in the snow and ice, and they crashed, killing both of them almost instantly. I was at the bar with a few friends and my fiancé at the time, when I received the phone call from the local police. I was away at college when it happened, and unfortunately, nearly 400 miles away. The news hit me like a ton of bricks, and all I could do was stare endlessly into the background. The lights were on, but nobody was home, if that makes any sense. After the funeral, my brother Joe and I were going through their house to get their belongings out, so the home could either be sold, rented out, or become property of the bank. The familiar smell of the old home reminded me of better times, times where I woke up on Christmas morning to see a Nintendo 64 and Pokemon Stadium waiting for me. You know, those good times. Like an episode of Scooby-Doo, Joe and I split up to make the job easier. I would be in charge of the basement and main floor, while Joe would be in charge of the top floor and attic area. So I started on the main floor, mainly because I still had this irrational fear of the basement. When I was younger, I fell down the steps and broke both my legs, as well as my right wrist in the process. All these years later, and it's still implanted in my mind. Hours went by, and after taking a break to sit down, rest, and enjoy a cold beer, I opened the door to the basement. As I looked down that narrow flight of steps, memories of eight-year-old me falling down and breaking bones flashed before my eyes. I swallowed hard. And I took one step at a time. Once in the basement, the old musty smell became familiar with my nostrils. I looked over toward the single window in the basement, where a framed photo of my mother and father hung below it. There was a time where my father wanted to make the basement a lower-level family room, but that one hanging photo 
was as far as he got. Under the stairwell, there were a few boxes from previous years that had yet to be unpacked. I pulled up an old wooden chair and began to search through those boxes, hoping I'd find something worth keeping. The first box was just holiday decorations, Christmas, Halloween, hell, even Thanksgiving. My mother was very festive, no matter the holiday. I set that off to the side, and I pulled the next box closer to me. There was an old white binder that had hundreds of Pokemon cards and sleeves. I felt like I had just discovered gold in the form of these little paper cards. I flipped through the many pages, just smiling from ear to ear. For those of you who are too young or too old to appreciate Pokemon cards, it was like the greatest thing for an eight-year-old kid in the 90s. I even went to a few tournaments back in the day and won some badges. Anyway, the rest of that box was almost uneventful. There were some old pieces of art that Joe and I drew in class, but nothing really worth keeping. As I searched through the remaining boxes, I thought for sure there was nothing at all worth keeping. The last box just had old silverware and plates, half of which were cracked and broken. I pulled out my phone to turn the flashlight on to search under the stairwell to see if I missed anything. And that's when I saw a small brown box tucked into the corner in the back. On hands and knees, I crawled under the stairwell to grab the box. The box was covered in dust, seemingly untouched in at least a decade. As I wiped off the dust, I opened up the box to see a set of videotapes, unmarked. Intrigued, I grabbed the Pokemon binder and the other materials that I deemed worthy to keep, placed them in the box of videotapes, and I headed upstairs. Once I exited the darkness of the basement and embraced the light of the room, I saw Joe sitting on the couch, smoking a cigar. Took you long enough, he said sarcastically. Where did you get those cigars? You don't even smoke. I found them upstairs. They're high-quality stogies, TJ. I think Dad has been saving them for a special occasion. I couldn't help but feel disgusted that my brother would smoke a cigar that our dad might have been saving for a special moment, knowing full well that less than a week ago he passed away. I sat next to him on the couch, and I placed the box on the coffee table in front of us. Why would you put that old dusty box on this good table? Good question, but I just smirked and shrugged it off. Dude, look, it's my old Pokemon binder. I bet some of these cards are worth a good penny nowadays, especially since they look to be in good condition. Yeah, you could sell them all and make a five-cent profit from all the money Mom and Dad wasted on them. Good investment. I rolled my eyes and set the binder to my side. Then I pulled out the first videotape that I saw. Oh, check these out. You want to watch some home movies and laugh at how freaking cringy we were? I said, waving the videotape in front of my brother. Oh yeah, let's pop those right into the VCR. Oh, wait a minute. It's 2017. No one uses those anymore. He had a point but I knew something he didn't. The secret compartment I made when I was younger in my room upstairs. I hopped up and ran upstairs to my old room. It was empty, but I knew what to look for. 
In the floor of my closet, I made a makeshift compartment to hide, well, adult-themed movies and magazines. In that compartment was an old VHS player that I would hook up to my TV when no one was home and watch said movies. I ran downstairs with the VHS player in my hand and a giant grin on my face. Thank God I was a smart little pervert, I said, holding the VHS player above my head. Oh, look, you found a VCR. But please tell me how that ancient thing is going to plug into this new TV. Are you going to science it until it works? Again, it was another good point, but I knew better. When you were searching upstairs, did you find an older TV? Yeah, but... All I needed to know... I told him to follow me upstairs while I went to the attic to find my old TV. I brought the television back downstairs and we plugged it in, along with the VHS player. All right, want to take bets on what that first video is? I'm gonna guess it was your 10th birthday party, when you peed your pants because of the clown. Just shut up. I guess old wounds never heal. I popped the first tape in and walked backward, making sure it was loading up. That all-too-familiar blue screen appeared, shortly before the video began. I took a seat on the couch next to Joe as we watched the video begin to play. It was grainy and dark, but we could make movement out from the side. What the heck is this? Some kind of backward snuff film? Joe said in a mocking tone. The darkness soon disappeared as a light kicked in without warning. There, we saw a male and a female in white coats with white masks covering their faces. In the middle of the room was a lifeless body of a young boy. He lay on his back with a black tarp over his body. We saw the feet and arms dangling off the side. Okay, what the hell, Joe said, leaning forward. Turn this stuff off, dude. This is some kind of illegal stuff. I was a bit confused about what I was watching. I gulped and continued watching, despite Joe's pleas to turn it off. There was no sound playing from this video, just the video itself. The two white-dressed individuals nodded as a third individual came out from the background. They had to be at least seven feet tall. They, or rather it, was lanky and looked as if he hadn't eaten in quite some time. Its arms were very long, almost touching the ground. Its neck was stretched and elongated as well, but its head was very small, almost comically small. It did not look human at all. The creature began to slowly surround the lifeless body of the boy before he placed one of its long legs onto the bed where the boy was laying. It had only three toes from what I could see, but that could just be the bad quality of the video. Joe and I watched in horror as that creature surrounded the child, but the real horror happened after it mounted the child and began to drag its tongue across the boy's cheek. Its tongue was purple in color and very long and skinny, almost like a serpent's. TJ, I said turn it off. Joe screamed, but I didn't listen. I was almost in a trance. I had no idea what I was watching, but whatever that creature was, it was no human, 
nor anything I have ever seen before. The creature dragged its tongue down the face and neck of the child before placing its hands on the kid's face. The creature was in a squatting pose above the kid, but its arms and legs were so long that it looked as if it were still standing. Joe got up without hesitation. He turned off the TV before we could saw what happened next. Dude, I freaking told you to turn that crap off. What is this? It's not legal. We need to show this to the freaking cops, man. Where did mom and dad get this crap? I mean, why did they have it? Well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? Joe, we have to watch these before we give them to the authorities. What if they're just some homemade horror films or something? We have to watch to make sure it's real, not something made up. Or else the authorities are just going to laugh at us for being scared by a work of fiction. Reluctantly, Joe sat down and agreed. As we turned the television back on, I rewound back to the part where we last left off, which was the creature squatting above the lifeless child with its hands on the child's face and head. The creature dragged its finger across the cheek of the kid, and its nail was so sharp it left visible cuts across the kid's face. That's when my eyes widened, and I looked at Joe. Joe. What? Your scar, Joe. His eyes widened. The cut across the child's left cheek was very similar to a scar across Joe's face that apparently happened after he fell off of his bicycle at a young age. He never remembered any of it, but that's what we were told. What the hell? Maybe it was just a coincidence, but things were beginning to add up. The creature grabbed the leg of the child and began to drag its tongue up and down as if it were enjoying the taste and smell of the kid. I gulped as I jumped up and I paused the tape of the VHS. Joe, look in the background. What do you see? I don't see crap, dude. It's so old and grainy. Look in the background. By the window. Then look under. What does that look like? Joe leaned closer into the television and squinted to get a better view. It looks like a picture or something. I gulped my fear down and remembered the picture hanging above the window in our basement. The basement directly below our feet now. I hit play, against my better judgment, mind you, and I sat back down. The creature continued to drag its tongue across the leg of the child before hopping down from the bed. It stood straight up and held its arms to its side. Its knuckles touched the ground, and it was so tall that its head was out of view from the camera. The man and the woman dressed in white both nodded their heads as the creature bolted out of the camera's view. The man in white proceeded to walk toward the camera and turned it off as the screen turned to static. What? What? What the hell was that, TJ? What the hell? I tried to calm Joe down, but even I was perplexed. I looked down into the box and realized there were more videos, but I did not want to look at what was next. I popped the first video out and put it to the side as I sat down on the couch next to Joe. Joe looked like he had just seen a ghost. There's, uh, three more videos, Joe. 
But Jesus Christ, I'm afraid of what we're going to see. He hung his head into his hands and began to stomp his feet in disbelief. As we sat in silence on the couch, our attentions turned somewhere else. We heard a noise that was similar to something dragging across the floor, and it was coming from the basement. When I was seven, I loved visiting my grandparents. I just couldn't go home without at least spending a night. My parents often let me, too, as they saw it as an opportunity to be relieved of me for an evening. I assumed those nights were their designated date nights. It wasn't that my grandparents had a lot of electronics or toys to keep me entertained. I did get to see my cousin Stephen, after all. He lived with my grandparents because his parents had died in a car crash before I was born. Stephen had Down Syndrome, but he was quite harmless and fun to play with. Though he was four years older than me, we got along well, playing hide-and-seek in the shallow part of the woods, or forcing my girly rhymes and games on him. His apparent smile told me he enjoyed our time together. As a city girl, I also fell in love with the scenery. Imagine auburn trees in an ocean of autumn incarnate, wind omnipotent yet fluid amidst the fleeting leaves and the overwhelming lack of all things human. This was my grandparents' place. Their house was old in the most beautiful way, and their land reflected that exquisite taste. It was a place where I could come to feel safe, at peace. I never could have guessed how wrong I was. Despite the serenity of my haven, night brought with it a strange feeling of insecurity. This was greatly due to my nightmares. They always came as I slept alone in the downstairs room near the front door. They weren't so much nightmares as they were horrifying occurrences. Yet a seven-year-old girl could only blame dreams for what she could not explain. As I was trying to sleep, I would feel a sensation on my skin. It usually began at my legs, so I often brushed it off as static or a minuscule insect. But the sensation would travel further up my skin, enveloping it in chills and goose flesh. By the time it reached my waist, I would jerk away and force myself up in bed. I would see nothing. It would be dark, and the only sound would remain to be the swaying ceiling fan. Of course, I was incredibly frightened at these occurrences, but for all my young mind knew, it was simply a nightmare that shook me awake. I remember telling my grandfather one morning about these strange sensations I felt at night. He laughed, picked me up, and placed me in his lap. Through reading glasses, he gazed into my eyes and told me a story. This old house has been around for ages, he began. 
Different owners passing through over the decades, but no matter how long the house went without an owner, it was never empty, even when my parents bought it. You see, my dear, when I was about your age, I discovered the creature that continues to call this place its home. A scrawny, pathetic thing it was when I first saw it, cracking open the door to my room. It was night, and I just couldn't sleep out of the excitement for the upcoming baseball game my father had promised to take me to the following morning. When I heard the creak of that old door, I shifted my eyes to the light that beamed in through the ever-widening crevice. I dared not move, as it would surely startle the both of us. It crept in slowly, and by the dim light from the hallway I could see its pale, bony limbs crawling across the floor to the foot of my bed. Now, you probably think I was too scared to do anything, but I was foolhardy. On the nightstand next to me was my slingshot, and next to it were a dozen of the hardest pebbles and acorns I could muster. So, I let it come closer and closer until I could see its dark, black, glistening eyes peeking over the sheet. It reached its hands out toward me, inch by inch, until he was close enough to... Edward! My grandmother reprimanded. Don't tell that poor girl ghost stories or she's not going to sleep a wink. My grandfather laughed and placed me back in the floor before he walked away to tend to some unseen elderly task. He looked down and said to me, Just close your eyes, ignore the feeling, and he'll go away. Sleep is the safest place of all. Needless to say, I was scared out of my mind, and I would soon come to know this story as fact. A month passed, and I was staying over at my grandparents' place once more. This time, my parents had been the ones to ask me to sleep over. They had plans for a nice dinner in the city, and had no time to hire a sitter. For my love of the place, I had no problem with this. It was as if I always forgot about the strangeness of the nights there. The day went on as usual. Stephen and I played outside, enjoying the scenery until the night forbade us that sight. It was not until we were off to bed that I was reminded of the nightmares. I forced myself to believe they were just that, that being away from home always rendered my mind homesick in a strange way. The self-delusion worked, and I remember falling asleep without a bother, until I woke up in the middle of the night. It was still dark out, as the windows were thick with the blackness that could only be deep night. The witching hour was apparent in the air. I knew I should still have been asleep. But I soon discovered the culprit of my awakening. The sensation started on my stomach. A sickening feeling of being touched by someone unseen. The touch was far more deliberate than what I had ever experienced before. I felt bony fingers wriggling about, curious and explorative of my blanketed body. I couldn't help but open my eyes, never shifting as I rolled my pupils as far right as they could possibly go. The door to my bedroom was open, and not a single light was on in the house. I could make out the dark, gray outline of blankets forming a hill that could not have been from me. It moved about under the blanket in wicked synchronization with the hands that felt further up my body. 
I did what my grandfather told me to do. I shut my eyes hard, tried to ignore the sensation, tried to ignore the presence that shared this bed with me. But I couldn't. I was seconds away from screaming as tears poured down from my eyes and onto the pillow. Then it all happened at once. The hallway light clicked on. A figure burst from the blanket and flew past the illuminated hallway and into the darkness of the living room toward Stephen's room. I heard my grandmother scream. She must have been the one who turned the light on in the hallway. The rest of my night was filled with anxiety, fear, and an overwhelming feeling of uncleanliness. The house was filled with shouting voices and angry words. When I finally had the courage to walk, and even more courage to leave the room, I saw flashing lights in the yard. There were police questioning Stephen, and men in white standing firm next to him. Stephen was crying. He was a wreck, his face a flustered red with tears forming wet capillaries over his cheeks. He was shaking and moving his hands in random patterns in front of his chest. The words he spoke were unintelligible. Then he looked at me. His eyes were completely bloodshot. The feeling it gave me to look into those eyes made me want to vomit. It was a feeling far too complex for me to understand. After countless conversations with suited men and police officers, I began putting the pieces together. But it wasn't until my grandfather sat me down and spoke with me that everything hit me like a rogue wave. He, he told me Stephen had been touching me in my sleep. I'm 28 now. It's been so long since that incident. My grandfather has passed away. It was years ago. And my poor grandmother has been in a retirement home since his passing. As for Stephen, he died in an asylum. Apparently, he drowned himself in a toilet bowl merely a year after his incarceration. But my poor grandmother was never the same after that night. Her once virtuous smile became permanently absent. She hardly ever talked to me, and her relationship with my grandfather seemed tarnished and damaged before his death. I felt so guilty, as if all this adversity was my fault. A few days ago, she asked me over for lunch. I was quick to take her up on the offer, as I rarely got to see her. And when I did, she just wasn't herself. Part of me was always hoping to see a glimmer of my real grandmother, the one I had lost so long ago. When I stepped into her room, she was staring emotionlessly out the window. She was watching birds shove past one another atop telephone lines. I sat across from her on an oddly placed love seat. Honey, I'm so, so sorry, she began, her voice unstable with imminent distress. I wanted to tell you, I wanted to make everything right, but I was so scared, darling, you have to believe how scared I was. I asked her what she meant. Oh, God, forgive me. I could now see tears glimmering mid-fall from her trembling chin. She turned and finally faced me, revealing the same look of confusion and sadness I had seen on Stephen that horrible day. 
My, my dear, your cousin, your Stephen, he never laid a finger on you. All those nights you spent with us, the night I came down the hallway to check on you, it was not Stephen who fled your room. It was your grandfather. Melanie Carver was exhausted after her new daily 45-minute run, so as per her usual after-workout regimen, she threw her 5'3", 150-pound ass on the couch, requiring the next 45 minutes just to catch her breath. The house was warm, quiet, lonely, exactly what she had become accustomed to. The bonus of living out of the way of people, miles away from civilization, kept her diets short and without motivation. Without friends to impress, self-confidence had only gotten her so far. Tonight's run had been particularly interesting, though. The wildlife had been silent, unearthly so. Her favorite segment of the run, the part that took place along the trail near a serene, beautiful lake, had been so eerily still, she had felt someone was following her, appropriately causing her to increase speed and burn a few extra calories. And when that family of raccoons had sped by suddenly from a patch of bushes along the path, she had nearly had a heart attack. But she was back home now, lost within cotton comfort and melty milk chocolate. She knew it was kind of a contradiction to eat junk food after a light run, but Melanie figured she had earned it. She reached toward the other end of the couch, the simple task seemingly more adverse than any exercise. She nabbed the television remote that had been lying there and clicked the power button. It forced a subtle click from the LED television directly in front of her. The local news slowly faded into view. A blonde woman stood in front of a terrible accident. I am standing here on the corner of Garrett and Towson, where there's been an eight-car pileup. She spoke monotone. Three are dead after an armored transport overturned in the middle of the road while transporting serial murderer David Stern. Police advise everyone to lock their doors tonight and refuse entry to anyone whose identity you aren't sure of until this is resolved. Melanie quickly pushed the power button on the remote once more. She was not in the mood for the news tonight. It was only ever depressing news or bad news, and she didn't want it ruining her good mood. She placed the remote back on the arm of the couch, lifted her fatigued body from it, and strolled into her bedroom. 
She glanced at the digital alarm clock that lay on the nightstand by her bed. 10.47. Not too late. Not too early. Melanie knew if she went to bed now, she'd wake up feeling pretty refreshed. She undressed herself, her sweaty clothes reluctant to peel from her chubby body. She turned on a hot, misty shower and enjoyed the droplets as they swept over her face. Once she was done, she stepped out and dried herself. She brushed her teeth, the only routine she seemed to be able to keep. Back in her room, she took off her robe, turned on the rotating fan she strategically placed in front of her creepy closet, and crawled under the warm, cozy blankets. Sleeping nude was another benefit made possible by a lack of neighbors. No one around for miles. Soon, Melanie was adrift in dreams thanks to her sheer exhaustion. That night, she dreamt the marshmallow dream again, the dream where the marshmallows wanted to eat her. She knew it was a stress dream, telling her she would regret it if she didn't lose all that weight. Melanie was jolted awake by a sudden rapping at her front door. She rubbed her eyes, pissed at who could possibly want her attention this late in the hour. As she angrily threw on her robe and opened her bedroom door, she froze. There was a serial killer on the loose. She recalled that few seconds from the news, almost too late. For all she knew, that man was out there right now, wanting to be invited in, so he could slit her throat and hide out here or take her stuff. Or worse, he'd probably kill her and slice off her skin and wear it like that Buffalo Bill from the Silence of the Lambs. Shit. She panicked. She quickly ran through a list of all entry points in her home, making sure she locked them all before she went to bed. Front door, check. Back door, check. Windows, check. She felt a bit relieved. She might just be okay. Again, she panicked. Melanie just knew that the person outside her door was that killer. The corner of Garrett and Towson was only five miles down the road, and she didn't even recall hearing an exact time when the pileup took place. Hell, that serial killer could be anywhere, even at her door. Desperate, she threw herself under the blankets in her bed and poked her face out through a small opening. In her panic, anxiety, and nervousness, she would wait. She glanced at the clock instinctively. 2.33. Shit, shit, shit. She tried to play the denial card, cheer herself up by convincing herself that this was a distant relative stopping by or some late Jehovah's Witnesses. But in the back of her mind, she knew that it couldn't be those. There it was again. Damn it. This person just isn't going to leave, no matter how hard she tried to wish them away. She began to formulate a plan in her head, some sort of contingency just in case worst came to worst. If that maniac actually persisted and tried to get in by breaking a window or busting down the door, she would run for the opposite door, keys in hand, hop in her car and floor it out of there before he could get to her.
this time. The rapping came from the back door. She could hear someone speaking, but she couldn't understand what exactly they were saying. But, worst of all, she heard them rattling the doorknob. Her heart pounded. Her whole body ached. She felt like she was having a heart attack. She had to get up now. She had to get away. There was not a second to spare. She grabbed keys from the nightstand beside her and ran for the front door. She opened it as quietly and quickly as possible to avoid her assailant's unwanted attention. She ran into the car, closed its door quietly as well, and locked the thing. Then she slipped the keys into the ignition. Before she could turn the keys, sharp pain from her scalp and face forced her hands to find what was causing that grief. They were cold, hard hands. One held her mouth shut. The other was pulling her hair so hard it felt as if her head would come off. Then the pain from her scalp relented, but she immediately felt a cold sting at her neck. She peered down, her heart nearly giving out from the rapid beating. It was a knife. Then she heard a harsh yet satisfied voice behind her say, You should have opened the door. As the blade cut slowly at her neck, forcing a hard stream of blood from her throat, she peered through the windshield to see two police officers standing at her back door. They were knocking. readied my algorithm of sense calls and supplies. The first day of deer season, I was sure to be out there. Hunting was a passion of mine. I enjoyed it, but not for fun. I respected my kill. I was quite thankful for the meat and hunt provided by my prey. Perhaps it was in my blood. I happened to live in the perfect place for it, the deep Midwest dense with evergreens of every variety. There were rolling hills and creeks around every bend. The deer here were plentiful and, when I couldn't hunt, I enjoyed watching them as they came upon my land to graze. A temporary haven until their destined time. This region had never known wolves though. No mountain lions, no coyotes, for as long as I could remember. If it weren't for me, the deer here would have lived in paradise. Needless to say, the nearest city center was several miles away, and 
and so was my nearest neighbor. I enjoyed the serenity that I was constantly immersed in. I avoided horror films, of course, and ghost stories. Living out here with such things in her mind would soon drive you mad. Here, it was dark at night. Truly dark. Light was so absent some nights that had I somehow woke up randomly in the woods near my home, I'd be lost until sunrise. This particular deer season was promising. The bucks that I had been seeing were majestic and their points numerous. I was so anxious for the season to approach that I found it hard to sleep. Luckily, I had a means through which to tide myself over into the dawn of this year's hunt. I had an old deer cam my father gave to me many birthdays ago. I used it every year, but I always waited until the last week before deer season so I could see all of the populous fauna of the forest. One morning, before the early hues of purple fled the sky, I waded through dew-laden grass and weeds until I found my usual spot. It was an exemplary angle. The view was downhill, overlooking a babbling brook that beckoned the wildlife like moths to a flame. Few were the trees and obstacles that obstructed this view. A professional photographer would die for such scenery, yet I was the lucky participant. Strapping the gadget to the tree was simple and quick. It was almost odd being done so quickly after such a long, refreshing walk to the spot. For a moment, I just took in the surroundings, breathing untainted air and sensing a time when man was not peace. I walked home quickly, as if the faster I made it back, the sooner the week would pass and I would be able to enjoy the hunt. The week drudged by ever slowly. It was filled with monotonous chores and television that I was unable to focus on. But finally, my day did come. I was up again when the morning mimicked twilight and the foliage attempted to soak through to my toes. This was what I lived for, the countenance of life in every inhale. I made my way past where I had laid the deer cam. The mechanism sensed me and made a click sound so subtle that a pin's fall would drown it out. I suppressed a laugh and continued on about seventy yards. This would be where I sat and waited for my prey. Something felt off, though. The noiselessness of the forest was apprehensive. Such ambience was better placed at an empty funeral. I shifted, cracking a dead leaf underfoot. The sound resonated throughout the woods, the trees only making the noise more buoyant. I felt stupid. If the deer heard too much of that, my hunt would be futile. I leaned my head against the tree. The bark was hard and unforgiving, but such were the inconveniences that led to triumph. I felt up the rifle at my side, reassuring myself that the safety was not on. I had loaded it before heading out, not taking the chance to have to ready it if I saw a trophy buck on the way here. Crack. The sound of a twig breaking behind me stole my attention. An involuntary smile overwhelmed me as I nearly shook with excitement. I assumed a deer had snuck up on me. 
It was unaware of my presence, but little did it know it had just given itself away. My hands were glued to the rifle, ever vigilant for the moment to strike. Crack. The sound came closer and closer, the forest floor echoing the creature's approach. Soon the sound was just behind the tree where I sat, waiting. I could even hear breathing, deep, slow. I almost wanted to yell, to tell it to stand in front of me. It seemed to be taking its sweet time to show itself. The breathing stopped, and my heart sank. Was it gone? No, it, it couldn't have been. I, I would have heard it. Maybe it was holding its breath and listening for imminent danger. If so, it certainly had to breathe again. But it didn't. I waited for a half hour, my rear becoming sore from my unchanging position. The thing was gone, and it had somehow eluded me. I was frustrated. I turned my head slowly, revolving my skull around the tree like disagreeing cocks. I saw the forest abruptly behind me, and there was nothing. The same noiselessness remained, and there seemed to never have been another presence at all. I stood up. The hair on the back of my neck did the same. I wasn't scared, per se. I was simply uneasy. Because as I checked the soil where the sounds emerged, there was no evidence, no tracks of any kind. What had I heard? My skin became goose flesh as instinct forced my gaze in every direction. Compulsively, I looked up as if the thing had silently crawled up the tree. But the thin branches were as empty of a presence as they were of leaves. Crack. The all too familiar sound came again from my left. Crack. This time from the right. Crack. The sounds were coming from everywhere and nowhere at the same time. I started running, carelessly waving my rifle in a frenzy to escape the unoriginated noise, but the sound followed me, never growing distant or close as I ran. I wasn't sure if it was the brisk, chilly wind against my face or the fear growing inside me, but tears protruded from my eyes and flowed over my cheeks. Suddenly, the sound stopped. I stopped as well, fear never leaving me. I could not continue when I did not know the what where or why of my situation. I began to feel a breeze pick up on my right side, gently blowing over my ear, almost forming a hush sound. I listened closely, ready for another crack in the distance, but it never came. The wind picked up, and a new sound came with it. Not just a sound, but a voice. Run. I ran harder than ever before, my heart aching painfully with each palpitation. If this strange presence didn't kill me, the stress certainly would. The walk there had taken a good hour, but I ran it within minutes. When I reached my house, I opened and slammed the door shut. I even locked the deadbolt. No one around for miles, and I was locking my door from something. Eventually, I calmed down. 
I watched some TV to take my mind off of things. After being so excited to get out there, it was a weird feeling for me to rather stay inside all day. It just didn't feel safe out there. I thought I was just spooked, that a good night's rest would alleviate the anxiety and suspense. That night, it was extremely difficult to sleep. My room was hardly dark, illuminated by a lamp-made makeshift nightlight. The windows were closed and blinded out of paranoia. There was still rampant fear left in me, and I didn't want to take any chances. By God, I am going to enjoy this season, I told myself. In spite of my stress, my tossing and turning was only aided by a strange clicking sound coming from somewhere in my room. I, I couldn't place it, but it came every few seconds. It wasn't very loud, and soon I was able to drown it out with thoughts, and quickly those thoughts became dreams. Somehow, I actually felt rejuvenated when I woke up. The morning sun broke gently through the blinds of my bedroom windows, the warmth of its rays splashing ever so pleasantly against my bare skin. I got out of bed and made my way to the door, yawning and stretching as I went. Click. Of course, that same noise from the night before. Fully rested, I could actually make out where it was coming from. I perked up, listening intently to zero in on it. Click. It was coming from the dresser, stationed a few feet from the side of my bed that I had slept on. Confused, I walked over, still half asleep and in a daze. My blurry vision steadily focused on a dark object placed on my dresser. Click. I picked it up and nearly fell to the floor. I felt my mouth open, wide, and agape. It was my dear Cam. No, 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 I kept telling myself it was impossible. Had I picked up the camera before coming home? Yeah, that had to be it, I thought. To be sure, I popped the SD card from the back of the device. I opened my laptop, the screen blinding my not-so-awake eyes. I shoved the card inside the computer inadvertently hard. I clicked the icon for the SD card that popped up. A window appeared, listing hundreds of still-loading images. Yeah, I just don't remember taking the camera with me. I again assured myself. The pictures loaded, and I was relieved. The first several dozen photographs were of deer, Raccoons, a couple of possums fighting over an unidentifiable artifact, probably garbage. I continued to scroll down, a laugh building up inside as I realized how silly I was for forgetting that I had brought my own deer cam home. Then I froze, my heart refusing to beat for another moment. The environment and the next photographs were no longer the forest. It was no longer wildlife, because in the picture that now enveloped my screen, I lay sleeping in my bed. The automated slideshow perpetuated my horror. Each of the next photos were of me as well. I was in different positions, 
obviously tossing and turning as I slept. I wanted to cry, to scream, to do something besides look on in terror, but the entirety of my body was paralyzed. The numbers of the pictures counted down, slowly approaching the last photo. When the final picture appeared, I threw my laptop across the room and ran out of my house. I jumped into my car and drove maniacally to the nearest other living soul I could find. I stopped living there. Any sane person would never go back after what I saw. But whatever was there with me has followed me. To this day, I hear the clicking at night. Whenever I walk on the streets or around my own home, I hear cracking nearby. And when I hear those sounds, when I hear those sounds, my mind reflects back to a picture I will never forget. The last picture on that long forsaken SD card. The picture of me asleep and a hill of blanket apparent behind me and the clawed hand reaching out from it and resting on my cheek.